The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Our first session of today is Trips for Health Literacy and Equity at the Pharmacy Counter. And with us today is Charlotte Glass of Envision America. Charlotte Glass has worked with Envision America for 17 years. She currently serves as the public policy and community outreach liaison, assisting advocates and grassroots lobbyists working to make accessible prescription labeling standard practice. Before joining Envision America, she earned a master's degree in pastoral ministry from St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota. She has six children, and together they enjoy gardening, baking, and going on day trip adventures. Thank you for having me. Um, I've been really um, passionate about this health literacy, health equity side um, since I started looking into it earlier this year. Um, There's a lot of conversation and discussion about this right now because um, Healthy People 2030, which was published by um, the CDC and has a lot of input from multiple organizations, um, has put health literacy as one of the top goals um, for 2030. Uh, The definition of health literacy um, is not, it's more than what we usually think about. Um, It's more than just being able to read literature. Um, It's the ability to find, understand, and use information and services to inform health-related decisions and actions for yourself or others. So there's a lot that goes into that. Um, There are like four basic aspects of health literacy and certain health literacy experts, you know, might concentrate in one area or another, but when someone's going to evaluate a patient's health literacy, these are the four categories they're usually going to look at. Um, The first is taking into account um, cultural or conceptual differences. So that's going to include a person's understanding of how the body works, how medicine works, for example, like Eastern and Western or indigenous ideas about medicine could change the way that you understand how medicine works. And then understanding the role of medical providers or when you go to the doctor. So, you know, if you come from a country where there really aren't doctors in every town, uh, coming to the United States is going to change, you know, your idea of medicine very differently because we have uh, primary care providers emergent medicine specialists and and this whole complex system of medical providers. So helping people to understand all those things is like one of the first steps. And those all have to be taken into consideration when you are um, trying to work with a patient or educate them. And you can also think about this in your own, you know, like, What parts of biology are you unfamiliar with or um, what parts of the medical system are seem difficult or complex to you? Then you'll know what questions to ask in that regard when you are, you know, going into a medical procedure or whatever. The second area is print. And so that would be having access to printed literature. So if you are, if you have limited vision or limited, um, 
language access because you don't speak English very well or at all, um, then the print section might be especially important to you because you're going to be wanting to ask for literature in another language or in an alternative format. But print usually comes into play when you're trying to navigate the healthcare system, um, navigating insurance, how to get prior approvals, how to appeal a decision, um, when you're getting referrals, making follow-up appointments, labs, testing, reading test results, understanding the literature provided about a disease, a vaccine, a treatment plan, all that. Usually it's provided to you in print. And so, you know, can you access that print becomes the question. There's the third section is oral. So can you ask questions? Do you know what questions to ask? Um, do you have the language to ask questions? Um, understanding the treatment plan, um, understanding what is happening during the appointment. So a lot of that is oral, right? The doctor talks to you during the appointment. You know, if you don't speak English very well, or if you have, are hard of hearing, or if the doctor has an accent, uh, all those become, you know, part of that world part of, you know, do you know and understand? Do you, are you getting the information you need orally to make decisions properly? And then the last part is numeracy. Um, numeracy comes into play in healthcare when we're interpreting statistics, understanding test results. And I, I didn't think about this, but, you know, sometimes a test result a positive number is a good thing. And then other times a positive number is a bad thing. You know, sometimes a large number is a good thing and a small or a small number is a bad thing. So it, or vice versa. So, you know, knowing and understanding statistics and, and what those test results mean for, and then another thing, like you need numeracy skills for calculating insulin or other medication dosages. I was surprised how much, how much math goes into determining my son's insulin dosage. Um, so that, you know, that's a numeracy literacy skill and then evaluating risks and benefits of a treatment. So a lot of times if you're evaluating the risk factors, they're going to say, you know, three out of five people or, you know, 80% or, you know, this has a, you know, 45% uh, success factor. Well, how do you know if that percentage or that what out of what is that good? Is that bad? Is it better than other treatment plans? You know, is what is it compared to if you don't take the treatment? So there's a lot that goes into that in understanding, you know, percentages and risk factors and stuff like that. And then finally, billing statements, which are so complex a lot of the time and insurance. The whole insurance thing is crazy anyway, but, you know, there's a lot of numeracy that goes into reading a bill and understanding, um, you know, what, what, how much of this do I actually have to pay? So those are the uh, four sections that are used in evaluating um, health literacy, either of a patient or, you know, how accessible is a piece of literature that's being created. Again, cultural, conceptual print, oral, and numeracy. One, another thing that I've learned is that health literacy can be situational. Um, so you might be highly educated and know a lot about some medical conditions and not about others. Um, and we see this even amongst medical professionals, right? So you have a doctor, your primary care, but he'll refer you to another doctor if he doesn't know enough about this particular 
treatment plan or disease. Um, and so that's same for other people. I'm like, I know quite a bit about diabetes now because my son has it or about autism. But I, if somebody in my family had a cardiac arrest or something like that or a brain tumor, I don't know anything about the treatment plans or the options or, any, you know, the biology or whatever, because I just really haven't focused on that and learned about it. Other things in a situation that might affect your health literacy or your ability to, um, you know, retain information would be how you are feeling physically and mentally. So, you know, if you're under a lot of stress, retaining information is going to be a lot more difficult. If you're feeling bad, your ability to process and ask, you know, process information and ask questions is going to be a lot more difficult. Um, so I would suggest asking for information to take with you when you go to a doctor appointment, if you tend to get stressed out or if you get a surprise diagnosis or if you're just at the point where you're, you have decision fatigue, you know, there's just so many decisions to make, then you need to make sure that you ask for the, take the information with you and make your decision at another time. Um, also, you can ask for information if you're re repeated or sometimes explained in a different way because sometimes you don't you say what and they just say it the same way and that's still just as confusing so sometimes you have to specifically say can you explain this in a different way you know use a different analogy or you know <laughs> maybe they can use uh, other words also um, to repeat back what the doctor has told you that is called talk back, and it is a method that a lot of doctors might already be using with you. Um, they, they might ask you, okay, repeat or tell me what you understand is the, is the plan or is the problem or whatever. So they'll explain it, and then they'll ask you to explain it back to them. That way they'll try, try and know if you're understanding it correctly. And then always, and you're probably already familiar with this, asking for information in accessible format ask for permission to record the conversation or for them to email you a summary of your conversation or your treatment plan. Um, a lot of them have, you know, we'll put notes in the patient portal. Um, if you are not familiar with your patient portal, that is going to become the number one thing that you need to do. Laws were just recently put into effect. They passed a while ago, but now they're getting put into effect that all providers are, to have open access and transferability of patient health records and patients have 100% access to those records. So most of those records are not all digital and most doctors are, you know, have a patient portal where you have access to those digital records. That's where they also post, you know, test results. You can ask um, or like send a little text message or email to the providers. A lot of them, that's the way that you have to, request refills now. So if you're not familiar with your patient portal, um, it would be really um, a good idea to get familiar with that. And a lot of the hospital health, health systems do have like training sessions or patient advocates or um, navigators, they call them, that will help people um, learn to navigate those. Now, I have a whole bunch of ideas and things that you can ask your doctor or your pharmacy when it comes to medication. With your doctor, make sure that your doctors and pharmacists know everything you are taking. 
this is becoming like more and more important because people are, you know, knowledgeable about vitamins and herbs and natural remedies. Um, but your doctor and your pharmacist really need to know what you're taking. Even if it's like, Hey, I'm making my own ginger tea every night because those herbal remedies and vitamins are efficacious. I mean, they are doing something and they can have interactions with your other medications. And for example, like if you're having ginger tea every day, then it's going to be affecting um, your gastric juices. And maybe you don't need to take omniprazole anymore, but your doctor needs to know, you know, maybe you need a smaller dosage because you're, you know, you have this other thing that you're taking. Or if you're taking St. John's wort, that's going to affect your dosage of um, any mental health medications. So they need to know all of that. Make sure that you have a place that you're storing all that information so you can take it with you to the pharmacy and the doctor and synchronize everywhere you go. You know, if you have the Script Talk mobile app, there is a My Meds section. We just recently added a feature where you can add meds that don't have a Script Talk label. So that would be a great way to always have that on hand. Then also um, make sure that you ask, you know, what are you prescribing this medication for? So there a lot of conversation happens during an appointment a lot of times. And there might be multiple issues that you're working on. And a drug might even be meant to address multiple issues. So make sure that you get clarification on what the medication is for. Um, And oftentimes they will prescribe something uh, for one condition that's usually meant to treat another condition. And it's pretty important to like make note of that. Um, And if you have a medication list to make note of it in your medication list. So like say they give you a medication that's usually for blood pressure, but really now it's uh, for you, it's to control acne or something like that. That's important to put on your list so that when you have emergency medical personnel or you end up in the hospital or something, they know, oh, this person doesn't have high blood pressure. You know, this is for acne. Like this is not going to be a critical med to make sure that they're on, but to note that, you know, the blood pressure might change if we take them off of it. Also asking, like, how does this medication work? Uh, That will be helpful in understanding certain side effects to expect. Um, How long will it take to begin working? I I was kind of surprised with my daughter. Um, You know, some medications actually take three months before they actually start working the way that they're fully supposed to. And others take 15 minutes. So knowing how long this medication is going to take um, to really begin working can help you understand the treatment plan better. Um, what is the life of the med? So how long does it stay in your blood system or in your body? Again, some medications, they start working quickly and they end quickly. Or others start working quickly, but they stay in your body for a long time and so forth. There's lots of combinations there. So knowing the life of it and will help you to understand um, what to do if you miss a med or if you have to delay a dose, um, you know, it might help you to understand when and how withdrawal effects might kick in. Uh, and then again, asking 
you know, are there going to be withdrawal effects if I can't take this or if I, or if I'm coming off of it, do we need to taper it? Um, you know, sometimes you can't go cold Turkey and unless you want to go through the whole withdrawal process. Another question is what are we basing the success of this treatment on? Sometimes the doctor's idea of success is different than ours. Um, so for example, with my daughter who has chronic migraine, the doctor's idea of success is having less migraines every month. Her idea is not getting rid of migraines. Um, you know, I think our expectation was success is not having any headaches at all, but no, you know, for the, for right now, the, the treatment plan success measurement is just having less debilitating pain, pain days. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's important to ask because, you know, perfect, you know, perfect um, pain-free days, perfect vision, perfect whatever might not actually be the, um, the measurement of success. Um, discuss what side effects are acceptable to you and which are not. I think this is a really important one to have this conversation with your doctor because sometimes there are going to be um, side effects that you can't avoid. And it's important to let them know which ones are acceptable to you and which ones are not. They might be able to, um, you know, prescribe something different that that does have the acceptable um, side effects. Um, and I, for this, I'm just even thinking like, you know, maybe you, the job you have does not, you know, you really can't be drowsy. You just can't be drowsy for your job. Um, but maybe, you know, having some stomach irritation would be acceptable. And so, you know, you might pick one prescription over another because of that or vice versa. You don't mind being tired, but absolutely no diarrhea. <laughs> so having that conversation. Um, another thing that, you know, I learned this from, oops, I went, skipped ahead. I learned this from a YouTube video. <laughs> When people say, usually we do X, Y, Z, usually is a key indicator that there are other options. So if the thing that they usually do is not acceptable to you, you they have just given you an opportunity to say, you know what, what are the not usual things? Because that might be actually the better thing for me. And then I think finally, uh, how ask how willing the doctor is to go to bat for you. Um, if you need to have a prior prior approval, or if you need to go through the whole rigmarole of um, getting your insurance to accept a treatment plan, how willing is your doctor to go back for you? If your doctor is really not gung-ho for doing all the paperwork on your behalf, that might not be the provider you want to oversee your treatment plan. So that's all the stuff that I've learned, you know, about health literacy with your doctor. On the pharmacy side, uh, make sure you ask all those questions again about your medications. Um, if you didn't have those conversations with your doctor, ask the pharmacist. They will ask you if you want some counseling. And I would say, just say yes, because <laughs> they might educate you on something that you didn't know about your medication. Um, and if they ask you, do you have questions? Always ask some basic question. Even if you think you know the answer, um, it, there, you know, you might learn something new. And having that conversation and building that rapport with your pharmacist can become really handy in the future. I know questions could be like, is this the same generic I've been taking? 
Uh, a lot of people recognize that, you know, if they switch the generics, it could be a different size and shape. Um, when is the best time of day to take this medication? You know, a lot of times the directions will just say take twice a day, but sometimes there's the best time, you know, like take it with or without food or, you know, this is actually better to take before bed because it's going to make you sleepy or something like that. The pharmacist can tell you the best time. Um, Ask them, you know, is it better to eat it with or without food? You know, sometimes the medications will say you absolutely cannot take this with food or you absolutely have to, but a pharmacist could also tell you, like, if it's not a requirement, what's the best way to do it? Um, You know, will this make me sleepy? How does this medication work? What are the possible side effects? Is this on automatic refill? (laughs) I forget to ask that one sometimes, and it's so important, right? Um, And how many refills are remaining? That one is important, too, because sometimes, oh, well, now's the time I need to go and make another doctor appointment so I can get a new prescription. Do you offer free delivery? Now, sometimes they don't advertise that they have free delivery or some other service like that. Um, And so if you ask, though, they'll tell you what the behind the scenes thing is. Um, And then, of course, do you provide accessible prescription labeling um, so that you can have access to all your health information about your medications? Now, now we're going to move on to health equity. Um, Health equity is achieved when every person has the opportunity to attain her or her, his or her full potential, health potential. And no one is disadvantaged from achieving this potential because of social position or other socially determined circumstances. Health inequities are reflected in the differences in length of life, quality of life, rates of disease, disability, and death, the severity of disease, and access to treatment. So there are a lot of factors that can go into health equity. So basically, like, your social situation, um, your social position, race, um, disability, all these things. But then your quality, your, your quality of health also affects, you know, your, your life and your quality of life and um, disease factors and stuff. Uh, there's a little graphic here. Um, so it says, equality is everybody getting the same thing each person um both like the mom the dad the kid and the person in the wheelchair are all given the same kind of bicycle um so we don't want equality necessarily we don't want everybody getting the same thing because not everybody needs the same thing um equity is when everyone gets what they need so the tall person gets a tall bike the little kid gets a short bike the wheelchair-ridden person gets a um, hand-pedaling bike. Um, so everyone gets what they actually need to be healthy. So I think that accessible prescription labeling actually increases health literacy and health equity. You know, you're, you're going to have better treatment plan, better medication management when you have access to your prescription labels and all the information that they contain, the warnings, the instructions, the refill information, all of that so that you can make healthcare decisions for yourself regarding your prescriptions. If you're not familiar with accessible prescription labeling, there are a lot of different options available. Different pharmacies offer different services, but we, we provide Audible RFID tags, uh, Braille, and large print 
and translation. So you can get our Audible labels in 24 different languages. You can get our large print labels in 24 different languages. Um, We have both an app and a standalone reader to read the Audible labels. In this this graphic, you can also see the CVS um, Audible label solution with their app. Um, We also have the Talking Pill Reminder by Walmart and um, Talking RX. Um, I don't have Tell RX on here. Tell RX is what Amazon is using for Pill Pack. Um, it's very similar to Talking RX, but instead of the pill bottle being on a little stand, it's like affixed with a um, zip tie to the side of the bottle. Um, I'm going to skip the videos. I think we're kind of the time thing. Um, but you can always go to YouTube and look look up Script Talk, and we have some videos. So as as uh, Rose mentioned, I am in, in charge of public policy and community outreach for Envision America. I have been tracking um, both federal and state laws in regard to accessible prescription labeling. Um, and again, like because of Healthy People 2030 um, and the new emphasis on language access and um, accessibility, there are some states that are passing laws with the help of ACB and NFB um, advocates. It's pretty exciting and amazing. I've really loved watching <clears throat> everyone in these advocacy roles. Um, so since 2015, We've seen, um, well, since 2012, really, um, we've seen New York and California add translation laws and language access laws. Oregon and Nevada in the last couple years did a language access law. Um, And we have Nevada, Oregon, and Tennessee that have all passed um, accessible labeling for the blind laws. And Washington is working on rules their, their law didn't pass but their their pharmacy quality assurance commission said we're going to make rules anyway because this is so important um you know they have a lot of um diversity in their state so this is a pretty important thing for them um and i'm really you know hopeful that some other states will take this on i know pennsylvania has had laws, multiple sessions that just really don't go anywhere because of politics. So, you know, it might be time to start just sending letters to the Board of Pharmacy directly. Let's just bypass the legislators. Um, That's always a possibility. And just a little note here for anyone who is looking for a participating pharmacy, you know, the pharmacies that we work with, they get to pick which options work best for their patients. They pick how they're going to provide it, whether it's at the counter or mail order or regionally, whether they deliver it to your home or you have to pick it up. Um, there's a lot of different options. Um, we have lots of mail order options at Caremark, Express Scripts, Humana, OptimaRx, Walmart, right there in your own neighborhood is accessible pharmacy. Um, So there's a lot of different options, and we're happy to work with any pharmacy that is willing to provide the service. So, and then I just have a few notes. Um, The Script Talk device can be read by, uh, or the Script Talk labels can be read by um, the Script Talk app or our device um, or CVS, SpokenRx device. 
um, no matter what pharmacy you get the labels from, our, our device will read them. Except, okay, okay, but it's confusing, right? Because CVS uses script talk in their mail order pharmacy, but they do spoken RX in their retail pharmacy. So the spoken RX device, we gave them permission um, so for spoken RX to read our labels because they have customers that might have both um, mail order and in-store labeling, um, but it wasn't vice versa. So our device will not read CVSs. So if you do use CVS, I recommend asking for the spoken RX device. That way it'll read everything. And if you have any issues getting set up with um, CVS, we do have a really good working relationship with them. So you can always call us and um, our care team will make sure that your CVS pharmacist gets the support they need in getting started. And then, um, you know, we're finally, we're not currently working with Walgreens. They're still using the talking pill reminder. A lot of Walgreens pharmacists don't know that the talking pill reminder is their solution. Um, you know, I don't know how to fix that really, but we do keep a running list of people who would like Walgreens to be a provider. If we ever convince them to do it, um, we will let all those people know and get them on board. Um, so, you know, if you want to be on that wait list, let us know. Uh, we periodically contact Walgreens and say we had this many people waiting. Um, so we'll see. We're not going to give up on them, but um, currently they are not providing an audible RFID tag solution. And then finally, I mean, just advocacy, you have the right to have accessible labeling, especially if you're a Medicare, Medicaid or Medicare patient, the Affordable Care Act leaves no loopholes the way the ADA does. But you do have to ask, you know, tell them what the problem is and encourage them that there is a solution nowadays. Um, you do have to follow up. Most of the time, the pharmacists are like, oh, I have to look into that. I really suggest telling them, okay, I'm going to call you again on, you know, in two weeks or next Friday and see so that they know what the timeline is and that you can help keep them accountable. And just know that you can make a difference, you know, writing a letter to the board of pharmacy or, um, you know, giving your two cents at a legislative hearing or something like that can make a big difference. Um, I, I was talking to some legislators and pharmacy board members in Maine because they had a law and it really didn't go anywhere because they were like, well, other than one person asking for this law, like we've not, not ever received any complaints at the board of pharmacy. And I was like, well, most people don't know that they can actually write a letter of complaint to the board of pharmacy. So I'm just trying to let people know that that's actually another advocacy route. And of course, um, Envision America, our patient care team is happy to assist anyone um, in, in finding some accessible labeling solutions. And I have a lot of um, advocacy resources at www.staysaferx.org if you are interested in advocacy. And then my contact information, um, you can email me if you have further questions at sglass at envisionamerica.com. 
And uh, my direct extension is 941-702-6602. But you can always just call our 800 number, um, 800-890-1180, which you'll find on our website, um, because they can transfer you or the ladies who answer can help you. So I am happy to answer questions now about health literacy or medication management or labeling. Uh, Christine. Um, I just wanted to thank you for mentioning going to the pharmacy board because we know that the bill has been sitting there, um, uh, you know, with Dan Miller for how many years, um, year after year he puts it in. And because of, as you said, the politics, um, it may well never move. And I'm not real sure that anything would happen with the pharmacy board just because of what the objections of the other side are. They don't want the small independent pharmacies to have to do anything, um, they say. Um, and, and that I don't know. I mean, I have a neighborhood, uh, you know, two or three pharmacy group that, you know, is, is my go-to place for medications and, because I don't do many medications, I don't worry about it. Heck, I only, you know, but, um, and there are several of those kinds of small pharmacies that aren't the big chains. And I think that, you know, that has always been the the Pennsylvania thought, which is, is really sandbagging things. But I'm glad well, that mean, you the, mentioned that. The rules could be really flexible. I mean, they could be like, you know, if you have more than five locations or something like that. But I mean, the truth is, if you go to the Board of Pharmacy and say, hey, there are federal laws and there's the ACE, the Affordable Care Act, and these are not being implemented because you're not enforcing it, they kind of are legally obligated to, do, to, to at the very least, publish some guidance, you know, at the yeah. very least, publish guidance. But I think that they they could make some rules, again, like... Like Washington State wants to do, yeah. Yeah, I mean, some rules like, yeah, again, like maybe it has, like if you have more than five pharmacies or something like that, like um, so that it wouldn't be in- incredibly burdensome to the small ones. But honestly, I mean, it's not really incredibly burdensome. I mean, it's maybe $1,200 to get set up and maybe $200 a year. That's not going to make any pharmacy go under. Not even a mom and pop. No, and the thing is, if they could lure some of those people that go to the big pharmacy back to them because they're so much more convenient because they're only a walk away, um, you know, they'll they'll cover it. Yeah. Tammy has her hand raised. Hi, it's Tammy. Um, I have been using Script Talk almost since day one that it came out. And if it wouldn't be for Script Talk, I wouldn't be able to fill my pills myself because I take so much medications and it's a blessing to have and to be independent in doing my pills. The pill packs just are not for me. Um, I kept on getting mixed up with like which is up and down. So Thank you for script talk. Well, Um, you're welcome. And again, I think like in this presentation, I mean, you need that information 
so that you can make informed decisions. So, yeah. Yep. I know we're running um, close to her time. So um, Don has his hand raised. I, um, I know um, I have, I'm, I've been with CVS for a few years and I've been having nothing but problems for the past year trying to get them to enroll me in the spoken RX. And I'm hoping uh, within the past month, I might've fixed that problem, but I'll find out this week, but it's been, you know, they keep saying, Oh, well, we're not equipped to do that. And uh, well, it's your, it's the law you're supposed to. And, and then you get people who hear this conversation and say, well, yo, he should be in a home. He, he shouldn't be on, you know, he, he can't take care of himself. He should be in a home. Well, if they don't provide uh, you with the information you need to take care of yourself, of course. Yeah. Right. And that's well, so every, everything nowadays is about mm-hmm. community living and providing the information necessary to do that. So um, Don, give us a call. We can make sure that everything gets set up for you at CVS. Awesome. We have Thank a really you. great relationship with them. So just okay. give us a call. October had her hand raised. I just wanted to, first of all, say that for me, I know what headaches are. And if I eat dried apricots every day and go for physical therapy, that works wonders for me. But I have a question for you. When are we going to put an end to medical tyranny? So if I want to go for bee stings for arthritis or take St. John's work, that it won't cost like 28 to $30 when I can get a Lexapro for 10 or 15 And they wanted to give me this some kind of neuronic acid injection shot for my knee. I can't afford it because it's $100.93 per shot. Three shots is $302.79. So I turned it down. I said, I can't afford it. I can't afford the medicine. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the the healthcare system right now is so complex. Um, that is a really good question. I think we're all asking that. Um, I, don't, I don't have any answers, unfortunately. Yeah, has your hand That's a big, huge systemic problem. Good morning. Good morning, Pam. Hi, and thank you very much. Um, I do have a question. I just wanted to know how I perhaps can handle the situation better. It's dealing with the pharmacist when I am the caregiver. Mm. It was hard to help the pharmacist understand because their perception is you, frankly, they used to think I was the patient and I really wouldn't. What was, what strategies can you suggest to deal with a pharmacist to help them understand as a caregiver? you need certain types of accommodations. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you are the caregiver and you need the health information in order to make care decisions for those you care for. So I think, um, and I mean, like you just have to bring up the definition of health literacy that's published everywhere, you know, and say, you know, like, look, this is the definition. Like, I need the information in order to take care of other people to make informed care decisions for other people. And so I need this information. I need this accessibility. Yeah. I don't think that uh, it's too bad that they're not like, you know, cognizant that this could be a problem. Yeah. Um, Well, it was hard with a mother with dementia and the pharmacist is saying, well, she can read to you. She couldn't. No, she has (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, no. You need to be able to make the care decisions. And I would say that, you know, mm-hmm. like I, would say that. I need the information so that I can make care decisions I for her. Decisions. So, yeah, you 
Thank you. The ADA and the Affordable Care Act, they all are very Mm -hmm. specific in saying that, um, you know, because of HIPAA and because of, um, you know, just all this stuff, like you can't rely on a child to translate for you. You shouldn't really have to rely on a family member to translate for you or to read to you. You have the right to the access to the information independently. So... Thank you for the opportunity and feel free to email or call me directly if you have more questions. Thank you, Charlotte. And thanks everybody for your questions. Maintaining self-reliance through the aging process and other changes. Um, So Deborah Kendrick is an author and advocate. For more than 30 years, Deborah Kendrick has used her communications expertise to reshape the image people have about individuals who are blind. She has given countless awareness presentations to community groups, conferences, and schools around the country. Deborah has written columns and freelance articles on disability for many mainstream publications. As an author and and editor of resource books, product reviews, and profiles, Deborah has empowered people who are blind or have low vision to shift their own perceptions about what is possible in life when opportunities are taken and resources utilized. Deborah, thank you and welcome. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, I just came in at the end of that last session and have to say that I, I thoroughly appreciated and enjoyed discussion and it's very much um, in my ballpark so to speak so I'll do a a plug (laughs) for my own book Um, for those of you who were expressing concerns about not being taken seriously or being treated respectfully um, my book available from National Braille Press Navigating healthcare when all they can see is that you can't. That's exactly what it's about, is taking charge of your own situation when you are the patient or the caregiver. Um, so much of all of this for us is the, um, is tied up with the misconceptions about blindness. So I am just so delighted to be with you today, particularly because the topic that Sue asked me to talk about was this whole business of multiple disabilities. When your disability um, landscape changes from what has maybe long time been familiar to a whole new set of situations. So, I'm going to be pretty informal. I'm just going to tell you some of my own story and uh, how things have arisen and how what I've learned, what I've done correctly and sometimes incorrectly, and how I have pulled a lot of resources together in order to maintain independence, which to me is critical, essential. I, I can't... Um, I can't imagine a life, I don't want a life, in which I am not in charge of me. So uh, I uh, have been blind since I was five years old. 
I had a rare childhood cancer called retinoblastoma. Um, I lost the first eye when I was nine months old. It always strikes me as kind of odd when we say lost, you know, because I didn't know what I had. I didn't care. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And um, so when, and when I was five, um, the cancer occurred again in my remaining eye. And there too, knowing what I know today about blindness and about radiation, I say, how I wish somebody would have asked me, of course, I was only five years old, but given the choice, I would have said, take the eye and let me go. Because instead, because our culture and the medical profession puts such a high premium on the sense of sight that I was pretty much literally tortured. Um, radiation... Uh, in in the 50s and 60s was pretty hideous. It's no picnic today, but then it was, well, I was just very, um, I was wrapped in lead blankets because I was a tiny little kid, and um, this radiation burned my eye, and it didn't do any good. So, (laughs) so, um, and and I, I don't have many memories of, um, those years, that time in my life, I have a few that are very positive, but I remember feeling like my face was on fire and crying and holding cold cloths up to my face. And I remember being in the hospital and feeling like I was tortured. And, uh, and when I finally could go home, and my father drew what was perceived by the adults, I'm sure, as the short straw to be the one to tell me that when I go home, I won't be able to see anymore. I remember being absolutely elated. And um, I, another writer approached me, oh, 15 years or so ago, who wanted to do a collaborative memoir. And it turned out we could not work together because she could not accept as truth that I was not traumatized when I found out I was going to be a blind child. But I I promise you I was not. I just was so happy to get out of Dodge, to get out of that hospital. And that is, I, I'm sure somehow that little seed planted in my five-year-old brain led to my attitudes uh, in adulthood regarding interacting with medical professionals and and ultimately to the book that I wrote during the pandemic. So at any rate, so I've been blind since I was five and I had, you know, a normal, typical middle-class childhood. Some things were rougher than for other people and maybe some things were easier, but I, I always, I went to public school. I was in a resource classroom I was often the experiment given it was a combination of my age and my ability and where my parents, how my parents kept moving around. But I was often the first blind kid to do X, Y, or Z. So from the time that I was 11, I was always the only blind child. And then when, when I was in high school, my parents moved yet again right before the ninth grade. And I was in a school where they welcomed me, but they didn't quite know what to do with me. 
um, which turned out to be more of a blessing than a curse. The curse was I didn't have Braille books and I didn't get independent mobility training until I was 17. The good news was that I was able to sort of orchestrate my own learning playground, pick my own readers and um, figure out how I was going to get things done. So, um, so all of that added up to uh, becoming pretty comfortable with being blind and, and developing skills that uh, led to independence. Again, I didn't get my independent mobility until um, I was, I had just turned 17. But I learned a lot of skills before that. I learned how to, um, for one thing, I had gotten Braille in the first grade, so reading is everything to me. Reading is what led to my being a writer, of course. And being able to use Braille and to put Braille on everything in, in our environments has a, a huge uh, handle on, on our dependence. But not getting cane training until I was almost ready to go to college um, was a detriment in some ways, but it was also really good because I had to figure out ways in, in high school to get from point A to point B. And I had a fabulous social life in high school, which a lot of kids who, a lot of people in, in my uh, generation who were blind in public schools say they, they did not have a good social life. And I did. And I think part of it was because my family was sort of ignorant in that regard and did not get orientation and mobility for me. So I would be in a class and I'd just sit there and listen to everybody as we were, you know, having our class interaction. And I'd decide who I wanted to know. And I'd go over to that person when the class, when the bell rang and say, hey, I have to get to Spanish in 201. Can you help me get there? And it was, it, it went a long way toward enabling me to make friends and to interact and blah, blah, blah. So uh, when I was about 15, everybody in school got their eyes tested and their ears tested by a public health nurse. I didn't get my eyes tested, needless to say, but note went home that I had some hearing loss. All my parents dismissed that. I dismissed it too because I had fabulous hearing. I heard things that no one else in our family heard. And of course now as an adult and all of you with um, blindness or low vision know that we work harder to hear, but I didn't know that when I was 15 and my parents didn't know it. Um, so my hearing was more acute, but it wasn't more fine tuned, so to speak. What I know now, um, is that my hearing began to deteriorate when I was a teenager because of the radiation that I received when I was five, but I, I wouldn't know that till I was about 30. Um, Things continued to happen that pointed toward there maybe being some hearing loss, loss. And when it was really evident and no longer 
avoidable was when I had my first child because I could not hear her without the baby monitor, but others would. And we all know that parents are more tuned in to kids than anybody else. So that obviously was an alarm worth uh, attending. So I got my first hearing aids, I don't know, somewhere along in there a long, long time ago. Over the four decades or so, I've probably had maybe half a dozen sets of hearing aids because hearing aids, you know, are, are like computers. They are small computers in your ears, and um, they are also like computers in that they become obsolete relatively quickly. Uh, so I've had a lot of them, and I've had a lot of experience with them. your shirt and out what of your pants, I, and I... What I realized... The more my hearing deteriorated was how much I had used my ears to see. Um, you're all probably pretty familiar with echolocation and some of us, some of us, some of us have it more fully developed than others and some of us don't have it at all. But when, when I was in my teens and twenties, my echolocation, I didn't know that's what it was called. I called it facial vision, which I picked up from uh, an article that someone read to me by Ved Mehta. But um, it's that ability to to sense uh, where objects are in your environment, even though you have no vision. I like the term facial vision because that's always what it felt like. They could see it, and I could walk down the street and say, there's a tree and there's a bush and there's a little car and there's a big car and there's a building and turn pretty smoothly into the doorways. And I, I don't, I don't have any of that now because, um, it is tied to hearing and, um, my, my hearing loss, um, well, I will say my hearing loss has progressed, but I had a very happy occasion just this week. Thursday, I had my hearing tested. And the audiologist um, told me that she was very pleasantly surprised that comparing my audiogram with uh, one from 2013, I had almost no discernible additional loss. So yay, that was cause to celebrate because um, we do need those ears to see. Um, but this is what we're supposed to be talking about today is how we adjust when there are changes. The biggest change for me, um, though the hearing is certainly challenging, and and again, uh, I have written a book about that that's available from National Braille Press, and you do not need to read Braille to get these books. Um, they're available in Braille, hard copy Braille and hard copy print, but they're also available in several downloadable formats. Um, but my, my book, uh, When Your Ears Can't Help You See, uh, lives up to the title pretty much, I think, in that I talk about strategies that I have developed over time to, um, to make it work when you have limited vision or no vision and limited hearing, how compromised hearing, how you can 
find workarounds to continue being independent and doing the things you want to do. The biggest hurdle for me of a lifetime, probably, was, um, well, it began in 2003. I uh, had I, I had been skiing, and I had fallen in, in Anchorage, and I continued to have uh, a spot on my, above my knee that was swollen and painful, and happily for me, someone else encouraged me to have it examined, and my doctor kept sending me for one test and another, which seemed kind of um, pointless, but I am so glad that she did, because it turned out that the same cancer, um, the same gene that caused the cancer that led to blindness was um, had created a, a leiomyosarcoma in my left thigh. And what this is, is it's soft tissue cancer. Retinoblastoma survivors, unfortunately, about a third of us have additional soft tissue cancers in adulthood. And um, I count myself as very blessed that while I did get this tumor and it led to a lot of problems, um, I'm still here. And I'm, 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 I'm otherwise healthy. And many of my fellow retinoblastoma survivors have not been so fortunate. So in 2003, I got this tumor in my leg and I had again radiation, which was essential because it was wrapped around my femur. Your femur, as you may probably know, is the longest bone in your body and it's the large bone in your thigh. So this tumor was wrapped all around that bone and so as not to have to take the bone out of my leg, they ra used radiation to shrink the tumor away from the bone and it was successful and then they did surgery and cut it out and took away the top layer of the femur and there's a scientific name for that, which is escaping me at the moment, but <laughs> suffice to say that um, all of the cancer uh, was cut out, but my, along with it, went a third of my quadriceps, and my bone, I was told that my bone would always be vulnerable, but to go ahead and live my life. So indeed I did. After that surgery, I continued to cycle, to ski, to walk every day, to go on hikes. I continued, in other words, to have a very active life. And um, in 2016, I had to have hip replacement in the same leg. As you may know, what a hip replacement looks like, it's a, a ball with a stem, and the stem feeds down into your femur, like into a tube or a straw, the stem of this prosthesis. Well, I was concerned about that uh, because I 
had been told that my femur would always be vulnerable. But um, the surgeon felt confident that it would be okay. So that happened in 2016. And um, six or seven months later, I was hiking for a week in Canada. I trained with my eighth guide dog and guide dogs for the blind. And life was good. Um, and after I had had that dog, and I, and a long way in there, I sold my house that I had raised my children in and lived in for many years. I sold my house and I rented this really cool townhouse that was a four story townhouse. It was vertical real estate. So it was skinny, but tall. And, um, it was really cool. <laughs> and, and I would think every day, I would, you know, we all play little mental games with ourselves. And I think, oh, you know, you think about 10,000 steps. I'm probably getting my 10,000 steps just getting ready in the morning because I have to go down two flights to take the dog out and up one to feed her and up three to my office. And, you know, anyway, I would just play that mental game. Well, fortunately for me, when my femur decided to snap into, as it did one morning, it did that when I was standing in a very large bathroom in that townhouse and not on one of those stairs, or I probably would not be here to tell you this story. So I was suddenly, I, life was good. I was healthy. I had no reason to think anything was wrong with my leg. And suddenly I was on my back and um, I managed, I couldn't, stand up and I couldn't move forward but I could drag myself backward I was lying on my back I could drag myself backward so I got out of the bathroom and around the corner to the bedroom and to a phone and called 911 when the paramedics came as any of you know who have had any kind of physical trauma it's amazing how the adrenaline kicks in and uh uh, just sort of you're at the top of your game for a very short period of time. And, uh, well, it's sort of like those stories, you know, of people who can lift a car because they have so much adrenaline to get it off a child, but then, then they totally collapse. And sort of something like that because um, the paramedics called me and they needed permission to knock my door down and which door did I want knocked down, <laughs> and uh, which was more complicated than it sounds. And then um, as they're getting ready to, to carry me out, I'm giving them orders. Right? I need you to get my guide dog. Here's where her harness is. Here's how you put it on her. I need you to get my cell phone. Here's my iPhone. Here's where the charger is. And and they did it. Others have said, really? They took that dog? Man. Yeah, absolutely. I, because I think because I had... I issued those commands with so much authority, they didn't question it. So my guide dog, I had my iPhone and I had my dog and, and then I passed out in the ambulance. But so what this, and I did not know until several hours later that what had happened was that my femur had snapped in two, um, because of this long time vulnerability and, uh, so I was in a wheelchair for eight weeks and 
um, that was my first learning curve. I could not go back to that townhouse because I I wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to get in, or let alone into any of the rooms because it was all stairways. Um, but I had not long before gotten a place in Florida, and uh, so I went to Florida when I got out of the hospital. Um, I was still in a wheelchair. Scariest. I have so much regard for our brothers and sisters who use wheelchairs on a daily basis, having to trust others to carry them because it was terrifying being carried onto that airplane. I don't ever want to do that again. You feel so certain they're going to drop you. But immediately, whether I was in Cincinnati, which is where I am now, or in Florida at my other place, I live alone. And so I suddenly had to learn how to get around in a wheelchair. Um, so I will say that my condo took a beating those first several weeks. Um, there are lots of marks on the walls. <laughs> I mean, they're gone now because we painted over. But <laughs> there are lots of marks on the walls where I crashed into walls. And um, uh, I knocked a few things over, you know. But but uh, so you, I guess it's going to be different for every person. Eventually, I experimented with using a long white cane with my wheelchair, but indoors, I, I had the leg that was broken had to be constantly, uh, fixed straight out and, and elevated, but the other foot was available. So I did a lot of driving the wheelchair with my other foot and pushing the wheels. It's something everyone should experience if you're blind, not that you should experience having a broken leg. But experience sitting in a wheelchair just so you know what it looks like. And the same with a walker. I didn't really know what a walker looked like until I had to use one. Uh, in, in my case, sadly, um, at the end of the eight weeks when I had an x-ray to find out if I could now begin walking, with a walker, it turned out that the bone was broken again in another place and broken worse than the first time and that it was at a really dangerous angle in my leg. We'll never know how that happened, but I then had to go into a hospital where I was not familiar and I knew no one uh, in Tampa, Florida because they told me uh, that I needed to have surgery immediately because the, the bone was at such a precarious angle inside my leg that it was really dangerous. So they took out the hip replacement, put in another one with a longer stem, and so I'm back to post-surgery recovery and all that jazz. And I went into a short-term rehab. So 
I'm in a place where I don't know anyone. And um, I think, well, ACB plays a, a part in my survival in this instance. I got into um, this short-term rehab facility where to everyone there, you're, you're just a package. You're just a package. And the previous me, the me who was blind, get up and walk away and maybe, you know, take some chances, do some exploring, figure out where I am, whatever. But now I'm completely vulnerable. And I, when I first got there, I'm in this wheelchair. I don't have any tools. I mean, there, there was, um, the first few hours were just a traumatic experience. I was left in the middle of what would be the room I would sleep in, but I didn't know where I was and I couldn't, couldn't move. And anyway, after being there for a day or so, so I knew that my mental health was really going to suffer if I didn't figure out some strategies. So the first thing was I didn't, all this happened so rapidly that all I had were pajamas. I didn't have any clothes. <laughs> so, um, I, I knew I had met one person in ACB in St. Petersburg and I called her and said, can you, um, can you, do you know of anybody that I could pay to go shopping for me? Because I'm here and I'm apparently I'm going to be here for a while. I have physical therapy every day and I don't want to wear my pajamas every day. And, um, Anyway, we talked, and she said, I'll go shopping for you. She got her son to take her to Target that night, and he showed up in my room with yoga pants and T-shirts, and <laughs> it was amazing. And then um, and then, being stuck in the room, you know, a lot of these facilities, they're combination nursing home, uh, short-term rehab. So there were a lot of people who had serious issues, and... Um, a lot of, you know, cognitive issues. At any rate, I, I called, I'm so grateful with this work. And again, it might not always work. You have to figure out what's available to you. But I called the, the Pinellas Lighthouse and talked to the O&M instructor there and said, I know this is unconventional. I'm in a wheelchair and I can't walk at all yet but I need to be able to move around or I'm going to go crazy and she came and um, we kind of kind of used my cane and the wheelchair and you know touching walls and whatever else I could do but she showed me how to get the best part was she showed me how to get to the nurse's station and to the dining room but best of all, she showed me how to get out to a large enclosed porch, which is how I survived that experience with my sanity still intact. Because every morning, as soon as, um, as soon as, uh, I had, you know, gotten medications or whatever I had to do, I tucked my laptop behind me in the wheelchair and stuck my iPhone and my Victor Trek down along the side in the wheelchair and I booked it outside and I, I stayed there. I mean, they would 
come and get me and tell me it was time for physical therapy or time to eat. Um, so then, uh, fast forward, there's been a, there have been a lot of, it's been five years of one complication after another and I'm finally coming to a, so I was walking with a walker and then walking with a support cane. I'm right-handed. I was walking with a support cane in my right hand and learning to use a long cane in my left hand, which is really hard if you're not ambidextrous, and um, was scheduled to go into the immersion training that Guide Dogs for the Blind offers, which is orientation and mobility for people who have acquired additional disabilities. Um, and then subsequently to get another guide dog. Unfortunately, um, I, I hadn't, so it had been such a long and miserable year, and I was finally walking with this support cane and feeling like my life was returning. So I went to, um, went on vacation. I went to Ski for Light as a volunteer, where I'd been many years as a skier, but the first night that I was there, I misjudged where I was. Um, some of you, the ACB convention was in this same hotel in Nevada the year before. I was not at that convention, but um, I, I heard that someone fell on these same stairs but wasn't seriously injured. Because of the fragility of my, my femur, I... So I was going back to my room after dinner the first evening. I never slept in the hotel because I there was a short flight of stairs in the middle of the hallway that I had not been aware of previously. And I'm not using the left-handed cane technique, maybe not even using the cane. I've never been sure. But I I sailed off those stairs like off a cliff. And I knew before I hit bottom that this was going to be serious. Um, and indeed it was. My femur was broken in a couple more places. Um, the explanation for all this is that, by the way, is that the rest of my bones are very healthy. I don't, I don't have osteoporosis or anything like that. It's just that the radiation weakens the bone so much and Parts of it are necrotic tissue, which is um, so it broke, and I spent the week in the hospital. And then there are some other chapters that followed, which are medical error and malfeasance. But I'm not going to go into those. What I'll tell you, though, is that it's been a very long road um, of physical therapy, and. Uh, and I am now, and again, here comes another blind person, another ACB person who came to my rescue in, in yet another way. I, walking with a walker, so for those of you who, who for some reason have not seen what a walker looks like, and, and I, I don't say that to be demeaning. As a blind person, I'd never seen one until I had to use one. So it's like a U-shaped metal frame, basically, so that is around you. So you're walking inside this with a, 
sort of a bar to your right, a bar to your left, and a bar in front of you. And it has usually two wheels on the front. There's four legs, and there are wheels, usually wheels on two of them. Um, and some have wheels on all four of them. Well, the problem as a blind person, if you, if you're totally blind as I am, you're using this thing. What do you use to check where you are? You don't have a third hand for a white cane. But I, to be, uh, to be trapped, imprisoned, so to speak, would again have been the end of sanity for me. So I, I learned pretty quickly to walk pretty well with this walker and would keep a cane folded up in one hand and take it out, open it up to look around. But then where a blind friend was the hero of the week, the month, the year, was when a friend of mine sent me an email and said, I just read an article about this Hemi walker, and it seems to me that that might be the solution for you because it only uses one hand. And sure enough, um, so the Hemi Walker has four legs, but it goes to your side that you put it beside you rather than in front of you. And that makes it possible for me to completely wield a long white cane in my left hand. Um, I'm still not left-handed, so it's still not perfect, but it has... Um, it has given me a, a considerable degree of, of additional independence. Um, so where I am now uh, with all of this is that I'm still in physical therapy and um, I am using the Hemi Walker in one hand, the white cane in the other, and I'm sometimes... When I walk sighted guide with people, I've found I can use just a support cane. And I have begun putting my applications in uh, to guide dog schools uh, in the hope that a school will work with me. I What I say is I walk. Um, my stamina is pretty good, but I walk slowly. And it was um, very, uh, it, it led me to think about some things that I hadn't given a lot of thought to when I began uh, applying to schools because until five years ago, I, I traveled everywhere all the time by myself all over the country and I didn't, I, I didn't have any fear and I, just figured if you have a brain and a dog or a white king, you figure things out. I'm not like that's completely changed because I know now as my, as my orthopedic, uh, oncologist puts it, there's zero tolerance for falls. I can't fall because it, because my, my bone would certainly break and it probably wouldn't, wouldn't be able to heal it again. So I just have to be really careful. And I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, someone, another blind person whom I really admire and respect, uh, we were 
um, at a conference together a few weeks ago, and he was seeing for the first time my challenges with hearing and walking and all of this sort of thing. And he said, um, why? I don't know. I don't know. I think if I were you, I'd never leave home. And when he first said it, I thought, oh, that is so disparaging. And then I realized he didn't mean it that way at all. He meant it as a compliment. And my response to that is, you know, folks, wherever you are on whatever whatever spectrum we're talking about, whether it's vision, hearing, physical mobility, cognitive reality, or anything else, we only get one life. And for me, I want to, you know, I'm kind of like a little kid who never wants to go to bed. You know, I don't, <laughs> I want to get as much out of that life as I can. So I, um, there may have been a time in my life where some of the things that I did would be perceived as risky. And I'm not, I, I I don't think anything I'm doing now is, is risky, but, um, because I can't risk falling, but if I have to walk slowly, that's okay with me. Um, now one thing I, I did want to talk about is mixing blindness with this. And then I'm going to stop and, and hope you have some comments and questions. The overriding problem with additional disabilities or one who is blind, is that our culture is so screwed up when it comes to perceptions of blindness. We just can't get past the fact that people are terrified of blindness, they're traumatized by blindness, and all they see when they see you is blindness. And so I, some of my progress, um, my medical progress was impeded by misperceptions of blindness. And I'll, I'll give you one example. When I was in the short-term rehab the first time, I had to be in one of those places twice, and I don't recommend it. Uh, I plan never to do that again, because you lose you are not a free agent as a blind person when you're in a place like that. And you do have to take some risks just to be in charge of yourself. But so I was in physical therapy every day. And that's, that's the advantage of short-term rehab rather than going directly home from hospital after a major surgery is if you're in a facility, you get physical therapy every single day. And that's good. That moves you more quickly toward recovery. So I had physical therapy every day and I'm progressing. I'm out of the wheelchair. I'm using the walker. I'm getting pretty good at it. And in, in my sessions, I'm walking all around the gym with the walker and I say to the therapist one day, okay, so I'm getting pretty good at this. Is it okay for me to start doing this in my room now? And she said, Oh no, no, not yet. So I thought, well, I'm not a physical therapist. I have to take her word for it. Um, and then I asked again uh, the next day, and she still said no. And I, I don't remember exactly how long it took me to put it together, but you know, I'm, I'm fairly quick. And I realized 
I think this has to do with blindness. And I, I said to her, if I could see, would you approve my using the walker in my room now, up and down the hall outside my room? And she said, well, yeah, but your situation, we have to be cautious. And I was so furious. And I said, okay, we need to go to my room right now. And I need to show you how I function. And so I was kind of a brat, a little bit obnoxious. But, I mean, it's a square room for Pete's sake with a bathroom off in one corner. So I start walking around the room, walking down the wall, and I'm saying, okay, so this is how a blind person travels. You walk, walk, walk. You can tell the wall's right there. It's right next to you. Wall's not going anywhere. If it's still next to you, you're still walking straight. Okay, here's a corner. Oh, my goodness, what a surprise. There's a wall in front of me. I guess I'm not going to smash my face into it. I'll just turn right and go around the corner. Oh, here's a doorway. Let me see. It's not rocket science. The doorway means I'm at the bathroom. Let's walk in. Anyway, um, I won. <laughs> she, I think she was embarrassed and then gave me permission. But the thing is, we put trust in medical professionals. And I think this is, you know, the extra work that we have to do as blind people. We have to see around those corners, over those hurdles, through those misconceptions and know when a decision is being made not because of a medical or health-related reason, but that it's laden with prejudices regarding vision loss. Um, I say so often to people in the public, you know, when somebody sees me going into a building, I mean, you know, I've got a lot of apparatus. So I'm really grateful for people holding doors now because... I've got the Hemi Walker in one hand and the white cane in the other hand. And <laughs> so I, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a, a process. But when people say things to me like, um, oh, I just don't, I don't, you know, you're amazing. You know, we all hear all this stuff. You're amazing and I don't know how you do it. I usually can tell by the context of what they're saying that what they're referring to is blindness. And I say over and over again to people, but blindness is nothing. I've, I mastered it long ago. It's no longer a problem. The problem is the walking. And I think for me, or sometimes, you know, the hearing, but for me, that communicating that to other people at times is probably the most challenging aspect of all this. But um, so I told you I would be informal, and I have indeed probably been too informal, blathering on and on. But I basically want to say to you that if Life has thrown these challenges at me, and I can figure out workarounds and keep living the life that I want to live and doing the things I want to do, then you can too. And uh, it's, I, I think the key is um, making sure that, that you're the person in charge of you 
that you don't allow others to take that power away from you and that you reach out to whatever resources are are available. So I'm going to stop there and um, hope that you have questions, comments. Lisa, Lisa Selinger has her hand raised. Lisa, hi. Hello. Wow. I'm really <laughs> feel privileged that I get to ask my question. Um, try to be quick, give a little background so my question makes sense. In the past three years, my life has changed pretty significantly. Um, I was diagnosed with a mild to moderate hearing loss. I have had two different spinal fractures. Thank you, um, osteoporosis. You really want me to avoid falling at all costs. Um, I also have long COVID. So um, fatigue, big time balance issues and heart rate just kind of going off the charts, although that's a bit better. So in light of all of that, here are, I actually have three questions and there may not be time to answer them all. Yeah, we do have One, a couple others. Okay. One is how do you get past the fear um, that I'm really struggling with that. I mean, just to travel because, you know, I might focus my attention for two seconds on the bird that's singing and I've stepped off the side of the sidewalk and gone down because I didn't clear properly. Uh, So how do you do with the fear? Given the medical profession's bias against blindness, how do you figure out what expectations are reasonable for you and which things you really maybe need to rethink and is there any kind of resource out there where blind people communicate oh I use a hemi walker or this is how uh, these are some tips for using a wheelchair when you're blind things like that oh those are just such wonderful questions Lisa we need to go on and on and on with this okay the fear I'm 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 struggling with it every single day, every single day. And I say that, you know, so often throughout my life, what appear to be hardships have been blessings. So in this instance, the fact that I live alone and had no one to help me, it was a blessing because it was do it or die, you know? (laughs) um, And uh, now I'm not... um, I'll be clear about I'm not out there walking long distances by myself like I was before. Now everything is, you know, I use Lyft and Uber, but even that can be a challenge. You know, you get into a Lyft car and you're going somewhere you've never been before. Maybe the driver will help you and maybe not. But, but you know, what I have done is if there's any reason to be fearful, any reason that I might get myself into trouble and fall, which would be the end of me, then I figure out another way. And I'll give you like a funny example. I was meeting some friends at a restaurant where I'd never been. And this was a year ago. So I wasn't, my balance wasn't nearly as good as it is now. I'm, I'm better every day. I, I, I think, but anyway, I was even more vulnerable than I am now. And I wasn't, I don't think I was using the Hemi Walker yet. And so I take Lyft to this restaurant and the driver didn't speak a word of English and I didn't speak a word of Spanish. And so 
where unfortunately I spoke a few words of Spanish, which was a mistake because then he thought I was fluent and that was really a mistake. So we get there. I've never been there. Are we in the parking lot? Are we in the street? Are we across the street? Are we next door? You guys all know what I mean. I have no idea where I am. And I'm saying to him, I, I need you to explain to me where the door is. I need you to show me the door. I need, I can't think of what, how to tell him. And poor guy, he gets on the, on his phone and he's calling somebody probably saying, I don't know what to do with this woman. So finally what I do is I call the restaurant. Because I think I'm not getting out. I could be stepping into the street and go the wrong. You know, I, I, it's just I can't take that risk. So I I called the restaurant and I said, oh, "This is kind of crazy, but I'm blind and I'm in a lift car, and the driver doesn't speak English, and I don't know how to get to you." <laughs> and it was the manager, and he said, "I'll be right there." And he came and got me. So there you go. Um, but I'm I'm just saying, think outside the box and don't, you know you. Deal with the fear, but don't don't push yourself. Um, just in physical therapy yesterday, I was doing some new balance exercises, and she wanted me to do one more thing, and it felt like I was going to fall. And I said, can that one wait? And she said, absolutely. So anyway, um, as far as people communicating, there is Guide Ups for the Blind has an alumni chapter that I only recently have been gotten involved with. Um, and it's n not very active, but I hope we met on my Zoom account about a month ago and there were about 10 people. It's called Guide Dog Handlers Always. And um, that's a not just like me, not everybody in the group is currently using a guide dog, but all you know people who have additional disabilities in addition to blindness so you know if i can uh, send you information for that and now my brain because i have a brain challenge there was a middle question i forgot what it was oh well uh, can we get no, one more um jeanette has her hand raised and she's not had an opportunity to speak sure. we can do her and then we'll turn it over to will as soon as she's done okay thanks rose sure. jeanette Yes, um, I'd just like to make a comment also on um, being in um, a rehab that's part of a nursing home because I had that experience. And uh, I have a, <laughs> an urgent urine issue. And the rule was you can't get out of bed until somebody comes and responds to your, you know, pushing the button. Well, I tried that three times, and of course, they weren't happy with the wet bed, <laughs> and I wasn't happy with the rules, and um, and I did make myself um, uh, a brat, uh, as Deborah used that term, uh, and so I pushed the button, and then I would make my way to the bathroom, and by the time somebody actually came for me, <laughs> I'd stand up at the toilet and say, okay, now you can pull up my pants. You know, like, <laughs> that's what I need. <laughs> uh, and I, so I just want to say, yes, rather be a brat than, you know, continue to live in humiliation because people don't understand. I was perfectly capable to get from the bed I wasn't, you know, I wasn't that handicapped. 
Um, you can't I, get well when you're being humiliated. I mean, that's the other thing that's really important that that medical professionals should know, do know, but they forget when they see us that mind-body connection is so essential to health and to wellness. And when someone is treating you like a piece of meat or a two-year-old, you cannot, you're not going to get well, you're not going to get better. So so I say, you know, good for you. And when, when I was going into rehab the second time, because, you know, because I'd had experience before, I, I was on alert. I got there in a wheelchair, but I was able to use a walker. And when we got up to my room, they were going to show, um, you know, they took me to my room and I wanted to see it. And I had the walker in my lap and I popped up and started moving. And I said, and I just took charge. I said, um, I'm sorry, I'm really slow, but I need to look around and I'm blind. The only way I can look around is to touch everything. And, and then I got all the way around the room and I found the bathroom and I said, what's this? And they said the bathroom. And I said, Oh, good. I need it. Goodbye. And I went in and I used, cause I knew from comments that have been made earlier, if I didn't make this happen right now, I was going to be like what you're saying, Jeanette, I was going to be given some sort of ridiculous rule that I couldn't go potty without grown up coming to show me where it was. So, um, yeah. So, and unfortunately, how, how do you know when blindness is affecting the advice you're being given? Maybe this sounds cynical, but I think you can just, you, you, you're better off to assume it most of the time and, and just figure, you know, seeing through, through that lens of, um, discrimination and misconception because it's probably usually there. I think it's important also then to take the next step. Um, I wet the bed three times and I, this is it. And then started going to the bathroom myself. But I also asked to speak to the social worker and then insisted that she tell the staff, you know, yes, this woman is capable of this or that, or, you know, these are the issues. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jeanette. And thank you, Deborah. Unfortunately, we don't have any more time for questions, but we do have Will Grigg on here with one more thing. Will, if you're here. I am. Thank you, Deborah, for that, that great talk. Um, Deborah, the re-image is a PCB initiative that strives to inspire the sighted community and people with vision loss to be informed about the challenges faced by and the capabilities of people with vision loss and to change their assumptions, attitudes, expectations, and conduct regarding blindness. Your attitude towards your blindness and your tireless work to change perceptions exemplify the mission of the re-image. Therefore, Pennsylvania Council of the Blind, a peer network for all those impacted by vision loss, thrilled to present you the 2022 The Reimage Award. Congratulations. Oh, Yay. Thank you yes. so much. Yes, yeah, so you'll get a plaque. Um, <laughs> oh, that in a few is. Weeks. 
thank you so much for all your work and your inspire, you know, your your inspiring talk, and, and uh, we yeah. very much appreciate it. Thank you so much, guys. All just keep doing the fabulous work that you're doing. Thank you. Removing roadblocks to self-reliance. Uh, Maverick Gardner, founder of MavMind.com. So Maverick is a master hypnotist and has been a successful sales leader for the past 25 years, combining hypnotist and sales techniques together to overcome self-sabotage, eliminate his fears of failure, success, and public speaking, stop chronically biting his nails, become more comfortable with customers, and make better decisions. Creator of MadMind.com, he's helped hundreds of satisfied customers write their own custom self-hypnosis scripts and learn to successfully hypnotize their customers for better business and personal outcomes and results. With 3,000 LinkedIn and YouTube followers and 100% free sales training videos now available, Maverick is your go-to guru for self-improvement and successful sales coaching. Welcome, Maverick, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Can you all hear me okay? Absolutely. All right. Awesome. I appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about removing roadblocks to self-reliance because this is something very personal to me. I've, I've been able to help myself become very successful with self-hypnosis and I've helped other people now and I'm continuing to help as many people as I can. So this opportunity is personally uh, rewarding for me because hopefully you will get something out of this and be able to uh, get, achieve the success that I've, I've been able to achieve using self-hypnosis. So uh, I have some slides. I'm just going to read these through and uh, talk about this. During this talk, I'm going to talk about how I overcame my fears, uh, my own personal fears, eliminated my own self-destructive behavior, uh, which was chronic nail biting. For me personally, that was uh, a demon that I just was, it was very difficult to overcome. Uh, I improved my business skills. I've become very successful beyond my wildest dreams uh, using the power of customized self-hypnosis scripts that I've learned to write for myself. And now I'm teaching other people how to do the same. So I'm going to help you understand how you can do it as well today to exceed unlimited, unbounded personal professional success for yourself and to become more self-reliant more than you dreamed possible, just like I have. All right. So my name is Maverick, founder of Maverick, uh, MavMind.com. And what today we're going to talk about what self-hypnosis is exactly and what makes it different from other forms of self-improvement that you may have tried before, just like I did, any other types as well. We're going to learn about the four types of self-hypnosis approaches and uh, you know when to choose the right one to achieve your self-improvement goals. Uh, well, I'll talk about a case study or very quickly about uh, how I helped Mike overcome his fear to achieve higher levels of success within his sales career. And uh, we'll talk about the biggest reason that your previous attempts at self-hypnosis have failed and what you can do to finally achieve successes that you desire to get to the goals that you desire to get to. We'll also talk about the two ways to induce a self-hypnotic trance because there are actually a couple ways to do it and how to use that to condition yourself to easily accept the commands that you create for yourself for the changes that you desire in your life. I'll also share another case study about how one self-hypnosis session with Rachel helped her, helped her to overcome her anxiety regarding a very awkward situation at her workplace that she was dealing with. Also, I'll talk about the step-by-step -step process of creating your very own customized self-hypnosis script 
that you can use to create your own that'll work for you. And then, of course, I will share my own personal story, uh, testimony, basically, of how I overcame my chronic nail-biting habit of over 35 years I was biting my nails right off. I mean, it was bad. Um, but the result is I'm more confident and successful now because I don't, I don't, I no longer, I avoid biting my nails. And it's, uh, it's, I'm just very proud of that. So I'm glad to share that testimony. All right. So this talk is for you. If you've ever had a fear of something that was stopping you from being successful or achieving the results that you know you deserve. Um, if you've, if you've uh, ever have a, uh, like a phobia or some kind of fear or something that plagues you relentlessly and you just don't know why and you just wish it would go away. Or if you have a bad negative self-destructive habit, like the one I was talking about, like you know, biting, my, biting my nails was my habit. You might have your own negative self-destructive habit that maybe you want to eliminate once and for all. Um, maybe you're already doing well, but you know you could get even better. You can improve something in your life. Uh, that you're doing well already, you just want to take it to another level. Well, maybe you don't know how to do that exactly. Um, so this this talk would def- definitely be for you. Uh, if you know you need to step up and be a leader at work, but you're struggling with self-confidence issues maybe, or potentially public speaking issues also, uh, some, some people have that as well. If you're continually stressed out, overly anxious, depressed, maybe having trouble sleeping, um, and, you, and you're just at a loss of what to do. Uh, maybe you have cravings for sugar or salt or fat or other specific foods that you know you need to eliminate, perhaps by choice or perhaps because your doctor told you to quit eating those kinds of sugary foods, salty foods, whatever, specific foods, because of your health would be at risk if you didn't. Um, and then also, if you've never used self-hypnosis, then uh, maybe you're starting over or starting from scratch, uh, trying to do something new uh, to become more self-reliant. You're just looking for a new way to become more self-reliant. Then this talk will definitely be for you. So hopefully some of those things resonated with some of you or all of you in some way. And so this will make sense as I go through this. So the, so the f- first place we want to start is to, let's talk about what self-hypnosis is. What makes it different from other forms of self-improvement that you may have tried. Okay. So, uh, Hypnosis is a natural state of trance. It's a natural state that we all go throughout the day. Um, so uh, if you've ever watched a movie, for example, or read a book or listened to an audio book, and you find yourself um, maybe scared for the, um, for the character that you're watching or listening, and maybe um, you cried at the end of the movie. If you've ever cried, at a, you know, like, like it was so great, so emotional, that you cried, that's because you allowed that movie or that book or what that experience to hypnotize you into accepting as if it was real. And that's at a very deep subconscious level that this happens. And it happens throughout the day, all the time. It could be even while you're reading an email or listening to someone talk to you about something very intently and, and very intensely, you might find yourself moved or caught up in what they're saying that you can't, you, you're unable to pay attention to anything else that's going on around you. Someone could call your name and you wouldn't even hear them call your name because you're listening to this story or listening to someone talk to you. That's a form of naturally occurring induced uh, hypnotic trance is what that is. And this happens naturally throughout the day, all the time through all it with you know, throughout the day with all of us. Okay. So if that's the case, if you, if you kind of understand that this is a natural occurring state, then self-hypnosis is the trance that we induce in ourselves. Like we intentionally 
induce the trance of self-hypnosis in ourselves uh, in order to put ourselves in that state and use it, take advantage of it to improve ourselves and to change, uh, like I said, these bad habits or overcome fears or, or whatever could be blocking you from, you know, whatever roadblock that's in your way that you know you need to get over, you need to overcome it. Um, that's what that's what self-hypnosis is. You're just doing it with yourself. And other forms of self-improvement um, operate at a conscious level within the conscious mind, meaning you have to consciously make a decision. I'm going to stop eating the sugary food or I'm going to, you know, stop biting my nails. That's what I would tell myself for 35 years. I'm going to stop biting my nails today. I was consciously trying to eliminate the habit. But that operates at a conscious mind. And guess what's happening? At the subconscious level, you have other things going on. So self-hypnosis is really designed to operate at the subconscious level within the subconscious mind when you don't, you're not even aware of it. You don't even know how it works. In fact, I'm still amazed that I'm not able to, you know, I don't bite my nails anymore. I don't think about it anymore because I was able to get into the subconscious. But I don't know how it worked. I just know that it did. And, it's, and I've got the results as, you know. And I and I can show people my nails and they can prove it. And I'm really, really very proud of that. So that's what self-hypnosis is. The subconscious level is where this is happening at. Now, there's four types of approaches for self-hypnosis. I want to go through quickly because I think it's important to understand what the approach is and, and like how and when you should use self-hypnosis. All right. So like and how to choose which one, you know, to 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 improve yourself or achieve that goal or eliminate that fear, et cetera. So eliminating a bad, like getting rid of a bad or negative or self-destructive habit is one approach you would use self-hypnosis for, like like my chronic nail-biting that I talked about here. Um, number two is if you want to stop cravings for some unhealthy foods, like I was saying earlier, if, you've, if you, your doctor told you to, you know, you can't eat those foods anymore, or you just have chosen it's your own choice not to eat so much sugar or, you know, um, you know, dessert. Like I was a big, <laughs> I was a big eater of desserts. Like I love different kinds of cakes and pies and things like that could never resist it. So, um, so this would definitely be something you could approach, uh, approach, uh, stopping those cravings. So you won't uh, have a need to want to eat those things anymore using self-hypnosis. The third one is if you have a fear or phobia that you need to overcome, you can use self-hypnosis for that as well. And fear and phobias are actually two different things. Uh, fears are typically, just as a side note here, fears are typically things based on a memory you have that happened earlier in your life. And ever since that experience, that memory, uh, whenever you think about it, it brings up this fear and it kind of stops you. And, and it could be conscious, it could be subconscious or both happening with that fear. Whereas a phobia is more of, you're not able to do something or you don't want to do something. You're very scared or have a fear of something, but you don't know why you have no memory in your past that really can link it. So you don't know why. And so some people call those irrational fears. Like I have no reason to like not, um, not be afraid of this. And like, for example, I was for many, many years, I was afraid of my of birthdays, like uh, birthday celebrations and people celebrating my birthday and saying happy birthday to me on my birthday. I could not handle it. I would run away and hide. And I told people, please don't celebrate my birthday because it would just scare me. That's, that's a perfect example of a phobia. And of course, I use self-hypnosis to overcome that phobia. So now I'm totally fine when people say happy birthday or want to give me a present on my birthday now, uh, you know, versus when I was a kid, I would just run to my room and, you know, sometimes even cry in my room. 
and someone would say happy birthday to me. Um, also, uh, the fourth one here is to improve a skill or area in your life. So if you, if you, let's say, uh, were, had a, maybe you have a game that you're really good at, like playing a game, a card game, let's say, and you want to get better at it, or, um, maybe you have a skill, a crafting skill that you just want to get better at crafting and getting, you know, manipulating whatever the material, like painting or, or sculpting or something, you know, something that you're doing with your hands or that it takes coordination. It takes some kind of skill to kind of execute. You could use self-hypnosis to improve that. Um, a good example is as athletes use self-hypnosis quite a bit to improve their skill and to become even better athletes at whatever sport they're participating in. Um, self-hypnosis can help with that as well. Uh, and it's and it's different than visualization. Visualization works as well, but hypnosis is where you actually put yourself in the hypnotic trance, which I'll talk about here in a little bit more detail in a minute. And you actually put yourself like under a trance, and then you uh, practice those things and let those uh, you know improve that skill at that level, and it will actually accelerate your ability to achieve that skill or that area in your life. So uh, to improve it and make yourself even better at what you're already good at now. So. These are the four approaches. Uh, we'll talk about a little bit about this uh, when we get to the to the um, later part of the presentation. Um, right now, I'd like to just stop and talk about really quickly a case study I have with Mike R. I'm just going to not share his last name because I do have confidentiality with my clients. Um, Mike R. was um, I helped him overcome his fear of like his achieving ultimate levels of success. He was a salesman. He was a first-time salesman. He was he did something previously that was not even related to sales. He decided to get into sales. And of course, he got into sales and then realized he might have been in over his head. He might have been changing his job to something that he was not ready for. So his new job as an account executive, which is what they call salespeople now, account executives, he had high earning potential. Like he potentially could make these huge, huge commission checks, which he had never made before in his life. So that was already intimidating to think about, you know, do I deserve that kind of money? You know, like it's not, not can I do it, but do I deserve it? That's the kind of things he was going through. He had a passion, desire, and a drive to be successful to make that money. You ask him, do you want to make a lot of money? He'd say, yes, of course. But subconsciously, he found himself not wanting to take the risk and trusting himself. Um, he did not want, he did not want to, uh, he was afraid of taking those risks and trusting himself. And he was experiencing what's called imposter syndrome. If you've ever heard of imposter syndrome, it's where he felt like he was an imposter. He doesn't deserve to be a salesman to make this kind of money. So he was just self, self, he was going through self-sabotage. He was sabotaging himself in a vicious cycle. He was a victim of this and uh, needed help. And so I worked with him. When I consulted with him, I taught him power of self-hypnosis, uh, how to create his own self-hypnosis script to address exactly that situation that he was dealing with, which was based on self-sabotage and also indecisiveness. He just could not make a decision uh, and couldn't even just think about things over and over again. And what if, say, what if this, what if that, and couldn't, uh, couldn't come to a decision point. So that was also plugging him as well. So I worked with him to create the script that he then recorded himself and he listened to it in his, in his headset every night for a week. Okay. Every single night and probably in the mornings too, I imagine. Um, but he told me that he did it every night. Like I told him to just listen to yourself, talking to yourself in this script, this custom script. 
And then uh, it basically reprogrammed his uh, self-sabotaging subconscious mind. And then he was able to then overcome and achieve success. Um, and it was like all the success that he had ever wanted. And he was so successful, even his wife even uh, had called me and said and thanked me for helping him because he was completely different. He was completely changed because his subconscious was changed. He was reprogram- reprogramming it at that level to overcome the sabotage. And he became more decisive as well. So since then, I've helped him learn how to create his own, and he creates many more. He's told me about now uh, different ones that he makes, just like I do and just like everyone else I teach. You know, you create your own as you need it. And then when you overcome that particular uh, fear or you achieve that result, become more successful, improve that goal, then you, all, then you just work on the next thing in your life that you'd like to work, the next roadblock. Because there's always a roadblock no matter what. So that, that, that's why this is really, really helpful. And it was really helpful for Mike. All right, we'll keep this going and move on to the biggest reason why your previous attempts at self-hypnosis have failed and what you can do to finally achieve the success you desire. Okay, so this, there's this first concept, which you may or may not have heard of. Uh, when I got into becoming a master hypnotist, I learned about this. And this is pretty much the basis for why self-hypnosis works. There's many other reasons why other self-improvement does not work and usually fails. But homeostasis is this um, is your need for your subconscious mind to keep everything the same. Your subconscious mind, that part of your mind that you're not even aware of, wants to keep you doing the same thing all the time and not changing it. It wants to avoid changing anything if, if possible. So think of it like your body temperature. It has to keep your body temperature exactly the same or within a certain range, you know, to keep you alive, basically. All right. Uh, breathing rate. If you ever think about like, sometimes you can take a deep breath yourself consciously, but then a lot of times you're not even thinking about breathing, but somehow your subconscious is still making sure that you breathe at the same rate all the time in order to keep you alive. Um, also your heart rate, uh, homeostasis is responsible for your heart rate being around the same range, uh, to keep you alive, obviously. And then any, habit that it associates with keeping you alive, it's going to regulate that and keep it the same. So you see the pattern here. There's things like body temperature, breathing rate, heart rate, and then any other thing that you do on a regular basis, your subconscious will just associate that with keeping you alive and will keep you doing that thing. So that's like one of the reasons why I couldn't stop biting my nails. It had associated my subconscious for me associated uh, my chronic nail biting habit with the same thing as like keeping my heart rate the same and my body temperature the same. So it kept me biting my nails in order to keep me alive. That's why I could never really overcome it. It was like, it's like fighting a force that's just unfightable. It's, you, you know, you're not going to tell your, your subconscious to stop, bre- you know, have you stop breathing. This is not going to happen. So that's what homeostasis is. So that's one thing that's kind of fighting you. Every time you try to improve yourself, you've got this going on. And you're not even aware of it. The other thing is some people try to change overnight. They think that, hey, you know, if I try to improve myself, I, I want results now. I'm not, they're not patient enough. And see, the number one job of your subconscious mind is to sabotage any of those kind of efforts that are too significant or dra- dr- dramatic or drastic like that. Like if it's going to threaten that habit that it thinks it needs to keep you alive, it's going to stop it and sabotage it every single time. That's why even though I knew about self-hypnosis, I still could not bring myself to write a self-hypnosis script for myself. Couldn't do it uh, because of this, because of this uh, phenomena of uh, what's called the um, 
Yeah, revert law, of reverse action. Everything you try to do consciously or subconscious tries to do the opposite and go against you in order to keep you the same. Law of reverse action is what that's called. Um, so any significant or dramatic change is seen as a threat, basically, and it's your subconscious will not allow you to do it. Okay. Also, this is another phenomenon that I think I might be the only one that's ever really figured this out, but I, I'm really glad I did, and I teach people about this a lot. And this is called permission conditioning. And permission conditioning is based on the fact that, um, you know, when we're about, uh, before we're about eight or nine years old, okay, we're taught to be, to like ask people for permission to do things because, you know, our subconscious minds were all hyper suggestible before we're eight or nine. So we do as we're told, we learn to ask permission to do a different or a new thing, ask our parents, ask an adult, somebody has to give us permission before we can do something, we kind of learn this, uh, you know, as a, as a child before about eight or nine years old. So after the, after the age of eight or nine, we form what's called a critical mind. That's, I think that's the scientific name or the term that's commonly used, which creates the conscious mind. So the idea that, that you can start thinking and reasoning, making decisions, uh, that you have a willpower. I can will this to happen. I will do this, you know, that type of thing. That's what's happening after the, about the age of nine or so. And so then, you know, everyone expects you to use your conscious mind to think for yourself at that point. Make your own decisions. Figure out your own reasoning. Uh, but guess what? Subconsciously, we're still conditioned to seek permission first from someone before we do anything. So we want to do things. We don't even, we're not even aware of anymore. We think, oh, I have free will. I can willpower this. I can make this happen. I can decide because that's what everyone expects me to do. Uh, after nine and then until now, whatever age you are now. But subconsciously, deep down in your subconscious, you're still needing someone to give you permission, okay? So so, um, so that's one of the reasons why things are stopping. You're probably not asking people for permission anymore. And also, um, if you think about, um, I have this analogy I like to use. Self-hypnosis is like dropping a pebble each day in a bucket of water until all the water has been displaced, okay? So every time you listen to a self-hypnosis script of yourself, giving yourself commands and putting yourself into a trance and trying to change your life, you listen to it every day. It's like dropping another pebble in a giant bucket of water. Eventually, all the water is going to be displaced and your subconscious won't even realize that it's been changed. You subtly and slowly sneak up on it, so to speak, and kind of remove the water out that way. So the changes can be long lasting and even permanent if you do it this way versus, like I said, trying to go too fast and expecting results overnight, your subconscious is going to fight against that and sabotage that every time and won't let it happen. So you need to sneak up on it using, using a, you know, every night, like when I, uh, well, I'll talk about my testimony here and how I did it in here in a minute, but it, you do want to, um, you know, take your time and just give yourself a permission to improve little by little like this, but consistently, that's the key. So those are the biggest reasons why. And then also I've, I've had this question uh, and people have asked me this question about, you know, how do you, how do you actually do it? How do you, so, you know, put yourself in a self-hypnosis trance? So I added this extra slide to talk about the two ways that you can induce a self-hypnotic trance. So you can use this to condition yourself to easily accept the commands that will create the change that you desire. So the first one is, Reading a hypnosis script out loud to yourself, or, um, you know, I guess you could have your readers read it out loud to yourself. You write it and have it read it to you. You listen to it. Okay. 
So in other words, someone else is reading it to you or you're reading it to yourself, but you have to make sure that you're alone and uninterrupted for the 20 to 30 minutes that you would, that normally would take to read it. You do not want to be interrupted at any time because it will break the trance if someone interrupts you. So if you're successfully able to read it to yourself or have it read to you and you're alone and not interrupted uh, with anything else, that will actually put you in a trance. It will work. Um, also, listening to yourself record it, like you can record it and listen to your own voice, which I think is even more powerful because uh, if you think about it, you trust your own voice more than you trust anybody else's voice because you listen to yourself in your mind more than you listen to anybody else in the world. You're talking to yourself continually all the time, whether you know it or not. So you trust your own voice. So if you can record a script, an audio version, and listen to your own voice, you will be amazed at how fast and easy you will go into a trance uh, because you trust yourself hundred percent. So that's why I, that's what I prefer to do, but you can also have a reader do it, or you can have someone else read it to you as well. And that will work as well. As long as you're listening to something uh, and, and also when you read it to yourself or, or I'm sorry, whenever you uh, record it for yourself, record it as if you're hypnotizing somebody else. So you say you instead of I, you just switch it around. You say, you will relax now. You will go into a deep trance now instead of I will. That way, when you listen to it or read it, it sounds like someone else is like a third person is actually reading it to you. So that's another key factor to keep in mind when you're uh, of these two ways to induce a self-ignite trance. All right. Uh, I have a case study number two that I want to that I want to also present with Anne, again, protecting her, uh, her identity without using her last name. But um, she, she, I want to talk about how she um, used a self-hypnosis session to overcome her anxiety about this awkward situation at her job. Okay. So she was experiencing this awkward situation where she, where she was working. Okay. She would not share the details with me. It was just too personal that she wouldn't share it with me. But I told her that's okay. I don't need to know the details of what's bothering you. I can, I can still teach you how to write your own script here and you can put in the details and keep it private. And it'll probably be even more effective. Um, so that's what we did. Um, she admitted that she continually uh, was, you know, had this anxiety it was the situation was causing her more and more anxiety every day she went into work. Okay. So I think it had something to do with a coworker maybe, or just something with her confidence with some skill she had to, exhibit at her job i think something like that is what i could kind of figure out but she like i said she never shared it with me um and she could not sleep she was having trouble she had insomnia over this she was thinking about it she was on the verge of depression she was getting like man i think i'm going to get majorly depressed if i don't if i don't do something about this and she was also as a side note here consuming a lot of sugary foods like cakes and candy like more than usual okay as a result of this anxiety that she had so after consulting with me, I taught her the, the power of self-hypnosis, just like what I'm sharing with you all today, you know, and helping her understand that, hey, you can, you can do this. You can overcome this it's just like I have, and I've helped other people. You can do it too. And I taught her that sugary foods also can help sometimes cause a depression swing. Like when you start eating a lot of sugary foods, it becomes a vicious cycle. And then that, that sugar, especially at night before you go to bed, will cause you to have anxiety in your subconscious at night. And then it will manifest in the, in the morning and in, in the afternoon when you're at work. So, you know, that's, you know, stop, you know, to avoid eating sugary foods could probably help a lot with this anxiety instead of causing it to get more intense 
and uh, and amplify and accelerate the this awkward anxiety that she was she was feeling, and she just didn't she just didn't like it. So I was able to teach her how to hypnotize herself and relax her mind and her body, just simply relaxing and just to where the anxiety could not exist because her mind and her body were both relaxed. And also, you know, of course, she made her own self-hypnosis script, recorded it herself in her smartphone, and she listened to her own recording for for two weeks, I, I believe, is what she had told me. Um, and all of her anxiety was reduced to nearly zero, and she felt 100% better when it was all done. She could deal with that situation. It was as if it never happened. And she stopped eating the sugary foods, of course, um, because she also made a script later for that as well. So. Again, the power of self-hypnosis and being able to create your own is that you can create as many as you need for whatever situations you have, like we talked about earlier, to overcome yourself. So that's another case study there. All right. um, Keep this going, and then I'll I'll get to the end, and then I can take questions if if you all would like. I'm happy to answer questions at the end here. Uh, What's the step-by-step process to create your very own customized hypnosis script that works just for you? Okay, so... Very simple. I've simplified it down for you. There's four sections to a script, and I'll talk about each one very, very quickly. But for the most part, I think you can probably figure this out if I just lay this out uh, in these four simple steps. First step is called the trance induction. That's the technical name for it. That's basically you're inducing the trance in yourself. Okay. So I don't know if you've ever seen the movies where or heard someone talking about, you know, hypnosis where they wave a pocket watch in front of somebody or they, t- you know, do some kind of a magical gesture and wave their hand and you're going to trance and so, okay, I don't, I'm going to tell you it could work like that, but for the most part, it, it's better just to, just to talk yourself, talk yourself or have a script, like I said, listening to it, someone else talking to you or your own voice talking you into a trance state. Okay. And a trance state is basically a very relaxed state. It's not sleep. You've probably heard hypnotists maybe say sleep, you know, you're going into a deep sleep. It's, it's not really sleep. It's more of a heightened awareness, but you are sl- slowing down your, your brain waves to as close to theta waves as possible in order to, uh, in order to, you know, be what what would they call a, a hypnoidal state? If you can get to like a hypnoidal state uh, with your own voice, kind of talking into it, uh, you'll get as close to sleeping without going to sleep, and that's where you're the most suggestible. So, if you think about it, uh, about thirty minutes before you go to sleep, you're already start, starting to go into a naturally natural form of hypnosis. Thirty minutes before you go to sleep, because your body is slowing down, your mind, your brain waves are slowing down. But you're not unconscious yet. You're not asleep yet. So as you start to cross over into sleep, that's where you're the most hypnotizable, most suggestible. And then also when you wake up in the morning, you're not fully awake and conscious for about 30 minutes. So right when you wake up, that's when you're also in a natural form of hypnosis. Okay. So you can use those times to listen to your self-hypnosis script recording right before you go to bed, right when you wake up and you'll, it'll naturally, you'll naturally be in it. So it amplifies the effects and the speed at which uh, the, the results that you want can, can be achieved by using that. But a transinduction is basically uh, putting yourself into that state. So, so like, if you've ever heard, I guess as an example, I'll give you an example of like um, common one. There's a couple ways you can do it. So like, you know, 
there's this one called a progressive relaxation, progressive relaxation. And what that is, is the relaxing of each part of your body from your head to your toe. So like uh, starting with your head and saying, you know, the top of your scalp is starting to relax and just saying something like that, like, you know, you write it in your script, your top of your head is starting to become relaxed. And now your, your eyes are starting to become relaxed. Your ears are relaxing. Your earlobes are relaxing now. Your cheeks and your cheekbones is relaxing. Your nose is starting to relax. Just like that. And you start to just pick each part of your body from your head all the way down to, you know, your ankles are being relaxed now. Your, the bottom of your feet, your heel is relaxing now. Your toes are relaxed. Now, I don't know if you notice, I'm just saying these things. You probably find yourself like these parts of your body, as I'm saying it, are starting to relax now, right? Like you can kind of feel it. So that's what, that's what I mean, is progressively relaxing each part of your body. So it takes about 10 or 11 minutes if you write the script out where you tell yourself to relax each part of your body like that. It'll be about 11 minutes total. And I've done this such a long time, I can kind of tell that's pretty much, it always comes out to be about almost 11 minutes exactly. If you, if you just take your time and pause and, and give yourself, you know, pause two or three seconds between each one, um, you'll be very successful in uh, relaxing your body. There's other, other, other ways you can induce a trance also. Like um, you can do what's called spatial, like the spatial speak where you talk about how, how far something is from you and the dis- or feeling the distance of things around you. So like how, how can you feel the space around you? Right now, the space around you between you and the walls in the room. Can you imagine the space between the walls in the room and the building that you're in? How much space there is between those things? And you just kind of talk about progressively talking about the space of things until you get like all the way out to the city you're in and the state and the country and the planet you're on between our planet and like Jupiter and then like between our universe and galaxy and like some other galaxy, you know, and then all of space. Like you just keep expanding, expanding, something like that. And the key word is space and spatial, the distance between different things. And that is another way that you can kind of, um, it's, it just naturally hypnotizes you because you're trying to fathom or understand or comprehend the space and the feeling of things between you and all these other things in the universe and all of space that's out there. Because it's just a very elusive concept when you start to expand out like that. And your, your subconscious will go, you know, like you'll go right into a trance within 10 minutes of just talking to yourself like that. So you can, you can, uh, you can write the script like that, or you can write the progressive relaxation. Either one will definitely put you into a, into a hypnotic trance that then you can move on to part number two or step number two, which is called a deepener. And a deepener is where you focus on getting yourself even deeper into the trance. So, um, a good example is many, many ways to do this, but a good common one that I've seen and I use a lot and I've seen a lot of people do with their own scripts is a, what's called a staircase deepener. And that's where you have the visualization that, you know, imagine or visualize that you're at the top of a staircase with 20 steps and you're looking down the stairs and it's very secure. It's well lit. There's a handrail. You can hold on to it, but you imagine just in your mind looking down the staircase or feeling the staircase and that there's these 20 steps. And then you are just going to, when, when you start counting 20, 19, eight, you're going to start taking a step, one more step down the stairs. Okay. So it's like 19, 18. Now you're taking another step, 17, and you're going deeper, deeper into trance with every step down the staircase that you take. So something like that, like you, 
however you want to describe it to yourself. And But the analogy is that you're imagining in your mind, you're not really going down a staircase, but in your mind you are, and you're visualizing or imagining that you're taking these steps. And every step you take puts you deeper and deeper and deeper into a trance. And you use the word deeper, and you go deeper and deeper. And you can repeat it like that. Um, it sounds interesting, like when you're conscious, hearing someone say deeper and deeper, and then you go deeper and deeper, like that. But actually, if you put that in your script and you slowly do that, when you're in this trance state and you're going deeper, it really, really works. It's really powerful. It doesn't sound awkward. It sounds natural. It sounds like, yes, I'm going, okay, I'm going deeper. I'm going, and before you know it, you're very deep in the trance and um, very open subconsciously open to the suggestions, which is the third part, which is where you give yourself specific post-hypnotic suggestions or embedded commands, what's called embedded commands. So post-hypnotic suggestions are things that you want to suggest to yourself when you're awake later. Okay. So it's not during the hypnotic trance, it's post-hypnotic. So, so in other words, you might say in your script, you might say, when you're awake later, when you're awake and you find yourself, you know, being offered a dessert with a lot of sugar in it, your immediate reaction will be to say, no, thank you. And your craving will be completely gone. Your craving for that sugar will be completely gone. And you will easily say, no, thank thank you, but no, thank you. And you'll turn away from that and avoid eating that sugary dessert. Like something like that, where you're giving yourself a command for whenever you're awake later, how your what your behavior basically is going to be, how you want to behave, like your ideal behavior that you would like to have to exhibit that you're not exhibiting right now because of your habit or your fear or whatever that your roadblock that you have. So you just give yourself the suggestion of what how you're going to actually behave when you're awake. Okay. And then an embedded command is the other type, which is um, giving yourself a command without, without commanding yourself, if that makes sense. So, so an example of this would be uh, if I command you to do something, I'm going to tell you directly to do it. I'm going to say, avoid eating the sugar. Now avoid it. Just do not eat sugar. Avoid eating sugar. I'm going to stop eating sugar. I'm going to tell you that that's a direct command. I'm telling you directly to stop eating the sugar. An embedded command is where you disguise it uh, and then you embed it into a bigger sentence where you might say, and and a good trick I like to use, a good standby is one, I'm wondering if, I'm wondering if this is, believe it or not, politicians are trained on this too. And evangelists and uh, lawyers are trained on this particular technique I'm going to share. Okay. I'm wondering if you want to avoid sugar now or not. So you say, I'm wondering if at the beginning and you say, or not at the end, and your command is right in the middle embedded. I'm wondering if you want to be more confident at your job or not. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Maybe you want to be more confident at your job or maybe you don't. So in other words, you kind of, it's very embedded to where you have to kind of pick up subtly on what is being said. And the subconscious mind will attach itself to the direct commands in the middle there. And that's, that's how you can uh, slip that in and kind of sneak it into your subconscious mind. But like I said, politicians, lawyers, uh, religious evangelists sometimes are also, when they do these very moving religious speeches or sermons, so to speak, they know about this, uh, wondering if, I'm wondering if, you know, and then or not at the end. So that's, that's, a, that's a good example. Anyway, there's many, many examples of different ways to do this. 
I'm sure you could look it up on Google, post-hypnotic suggestions, uh, embedded commands, embedded command techniques. And, um, and that's where you would put this uh, as part of your script. And that's probably usually 10 to 15 minutes or so maybe of that. And if you don't, if you don't have that much, like if you only have a few commands that you want to give yourself, you can actually just repeat them. Like you can spend five minutes to give yourself the commands and then just repeat the script again. And then a third time and a fourth time, whatever. Because when you're in a hypnotic trance at that point, when you're deep into it, your subconscious mind is just going to, it's not going to even notice that you're repeating it. It's not even going to notice because it's so deep in a trance and it's just absorbing these commands. So it's pretty amazing how you can just have it repeated. And, and ones I write, I, I repeat them all the time because it just totally works. And then of course, the fourth step is you want to terminate the trance. You want to bring yourself back out. <clears throat> so of course, now if you're doing this right before you go to sleep, then you might want to make a version where you don't bring yourself back out. And you just say, now you're just going to drift off and go continue on into normal sleep. And you can actually use hip self-hypnosis script that does not terminate the trance to help you go to sleep faster at night, like to fall asleep faster. If you have insomnia or something like that, you can just say you're going to drift off into a, a deep sleep now, a regular sleep, and you'll wake up in the morning refreshed and wonderful when you wake up normally in the morning. But most of the time, you're actually, you might be doing this during the day and you don't want to go to sleep. You want to wake yourself back up. So what you do is you do what's called a count out, it's called a count out, where you count yourself out. And you start with zero and you come up to five and you say, I'm in a moment. You come, this is pretty much how you say it. In a moment, you are going to wake up out of this trance. I'm going to count from zero to five. And when I reach the number five, you will be completely 100% awake and out of the trance and completely awake, feeling refreshed and wonderful at the, at the number five when I reach it. Okay, are you ready? Zero. You're starting to wake up now. You're starting to open your, open your mind, your eyes, wake up. Number two, uh, number three, number, and you count yourself out little by little and give yourself, you know, keep telling yourself to wake up, wake up. Three, wake up. You're waking now. Four, you're almost awake. And in five, now you're fully awake and completely relaxed and feeling wonderful. And the session is now ended, you know, something like that. So you want it to be final. And you also want your subconscious to know that it's time to come up because believe it or not, when you're in that trance, you kind of, your subconscious wants to stay there because it is so relaxing and wonderful that it just wants to stay there. And just like, like I said, drift off and go to sleep. So to real sleep, um, because you're in that state in between sleep when you're in a trance like this. So you want to make sure you wake yourself back up like that by counting from zero to five and associating the number five with being fully awake and refreshed and feeling good and wonderful. You might as well, if you're going to come out, you might as well give yourself the post-hypnotic suggestion that you feel great and you're excited and life is great. And I always love doing that in mind. So, um, so those are the four steps, pretty, pretty straightforward. Like I said, you can probably Google a lot of these things um, if you want to get some examples that I gave you some in here as well that I use a lot. And now I want to talk about the final case study, which is me, how I managed to eliminate my chronic nail-biting habit of 35 years. Now, I, you uh, probably can't see the picture I have, but just imagine uh, my, a close-up of my hand with my nails like chewed off and like scarred up and it's just horrible and they're yellow and it's just it's gross okay this is what i was embarrassed for 35 years i just could not show my i hated showing my hands in public i, I was afraid people would notice and they would know like wow man he, he just rips his nails off with his teeth that's just ruthless that's horrible 
And as a business executive, a person in a profession like mine, right? I can't, I, it's just embarrassing and it's just, it's, it's not good. So I tried everything to stop biting my nails completely off, like completely off. Um, I even used that bitter tasting fingernail polish you're supposed to put on there. That didn't work. I would just get used to the bitterness and I just keep doing it. I tried rubber bands where you like snap rubber bands. Every time you want to bite your nails, you snap a rubber band to try to create like a little pain uh, or even shock therapy where I'd have um, someone, if my wife saw me, she would scream at me very quickly, just scream at me and scare me to shock me out of it. Uh, nothing worked. Uh, it just, because again, the law of reverse action, every time I would try to stop something else would, you know, stop me from stopping. So I knew self-hypnosis would work, but I just couldn't, I kept sabotaging myself. I just wouldn't, I wouldn't write my own script because I knew it would work. So I just, my subconscious wouldn't let me do it. I never wrote it down. So I had to, I had to actually sneak up on it and write a little by little each day. Right. So I finally forced myself to do it a little by little. And now I'm switching to the picture. I'm very proud. My nails are growing out. Not the best. I mean, it's, you know, I'm still, uh, have to get them, um, you know, uh, would have manicured or whatever here, but I just was so proud when they finally started growing out for the first time in my life that I took a picture and I added it in here. Um, so again, don't ask me how this worked, but it totally did just subconsciously the, the, the script work. It only took me 12 days of listening to my, my, my self-hypnosis every night to stop biting my nails. So I've never bit my nails again to this day. They still are growing. And like I said, I get a manicured, which is a new thing for me. I've never had to get a manicured before. <laughs> so I had to get used to some new things and also kind of accidentally scratching myself. I, I didn't, I didn't even know about that until I grew my nails out for the first time. Uh, this is a couple years ago that this, you know, about a year and a half ago, I'm sorry, that, that I finally stopped. So anyway, that um, is my story. And um, so now I have a question for you. Do you have a fear or phobia that you need to banish from your life for good? Or do you want to improve a skill you already have or take your game two or three or five levels above where you are now? Or are you tired of some bad or negative or self-destructive behavior that you know you need to eliminate immediately, like you have to get rid of it? Or would you like more self-confidence, more self-control, maybe more self-assurance that you're able to achieve your goals faster? Or do you need to stop those out-of-control cravings that cause you to eat the wrong foods that you know are bad for your health? Are you looking for more self-reliance? Well, then self-hypnosis might be the answer for you. Thank you. All right. Uh, My name is Maverick, and I'm open for questions if you'd like to talk about any of this. I'm on the panel, and I wonder if I could ask a quick question. Sure. Can you use uh, techniques like this to at least eliminate chronic pain or reduce it so that you're not as bothered by it if that's something that you have? Yes, you totally can. And I'm actually trained in that too. I took a specialty course uh, in my training as a master hypnotist to work on that because I also have pain and I have people in my life that have pain. So I can teach you one right now that you can try if you want to help just to see how this works. Um, you, even if you don't have a pain, you can just still go along with me. So, so just for a moment, just, a, is that okay? Is that okay, Douglas? If I, yeah, sure. This? Okay. <clears throat> so imagine that out in front of you at about arm's length away. In fact, in fact, with your arm physically reach out in front of you and imagine that you're grabbing a dial. There's a dial that's floating in front of you and it's fixed there and it's a pain dial. And it's like kind of in the middle. Uh, and, and if you have a pain right now, imagine if you did have a pain, and this dial was controlling that pain, just reach out and grab it with your hand. It's like as if it was floating, like, like a mind would do, like in the air, in midair. Mm-hmm. Grab the dial with your thumb and your finger, 
And then I want you to turn it to the right and turn it up and make the pain even more intense than it is. Like make it hurt more. Okay. Just make it hurt more by turning it up. And when you can't stand anymore, turn it back to the middle again, back to where it was when you started. And then guess what? Turn it to the left and, and reduce the pain that you're feeling. Okay. Now, once you've done that, drop your arm. And then imagine in your mind that the dial is still there and you're reaching up with an imaginary arm, like not your arm, but just your own imaginary arm, just like you did physically. But now in your mind, you're going to reach up and you're going to do the same thing. You're going to grab the dial and you're going to feel the pain and you're going to turn it up to the right and you're going to make the pain worse. You're going to make it more intense, make it hurt even more. Okay. And then turn it back to the middle and then slowly turn it to the left. And, and if you want to turn it all the way down to zero and get rid of the pain completely, you can do that as well. So that's called the pain down method. And that works a lot for some people, depending on, depending on what they have to control, to control it. Um, but that's your, that's basically programming your subconscious mind to associate the pain with that dial and that you have the, you, you have the control to make it worse or better to make it worse, more intense or to make it go away. Cause so your mind, your subconscious mind doesn't know the difference between, you know, like, like it needs to know that you can control it both ways. You can't just get rid of it. You have to know that you can also intensify it as well. Once the subconscious mind figures that out, then it's fairly easy for you to be able to control it with a pain dial like that. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, and, that's, and that's just one way, yeah. Another quick question. Have you um, done studies or worked with people who are blind before? And if so, uh, was it different than working with somebody with vision? Um, I have a friend, a couple friends, actually, um, actually my wife's friends, uh, that are blind. And so, um, worked with them before, uh, it's a little different. Uh, some, it depends on how, what your orientation to the, to the sighted world is. So like, uh, my, my wife's friends that I've worked with were sighted before and they lost their vision, uh, from I think diabetes or whatever. They lost their vision when they were like in their twenties. So they have some reference to visual. So, Sometimes when I talk about things that might be more visual, um, they have no problem have taking the suggestions because in, they kind of understand it. But I also, you know, I would believe that even if you've never seen anything, like never had sight before, like you're blind from birth, you probably also have the idea of what sighted, what watching something is or looking at something because of the way people talk around you. And since hypnosis and self-hypnosis is a very much an audio, audio thing, like you're, you're usually having the, uh, the, I usually have my patients, if I'm hypnotizing them myself, I'm having them close their eyes anyway, right? Because you want to eliminate any kind of distractions visually anyway. You want it to be the inner visualization, which is more powerful than the outer visualization, if that makes sense. So I, I guess um, it just, you know, some of those factors might, might play into it, but, um, but for the most part, you might, you know, it might be just the same or better for sight impaired. Jonna had her hand raised. Um, well, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you. Yes, thank you. I appreciate you giving me I, the opportunity. I, um, I, I took notes. Um, I'm very interested in learning more about how to write my own script because mm-hmm. I really think that that would be really, really cool to listen to at night before I go to sleep. Um, so do you have, do you work with people on how to design a specific script so they so their quote unquote subconscious doesn't um sabotage mm-hmm. that script 
Sure. Yeah, I do that quite a bit. Um, I also have, I've also encapsulated into a course that I have that I can get people can take on their own and they can learn about all the different things because I just got to the point where it's like, it might be easier for me to just write this down or make a recording of me going through all the different steps and things like that. But yeah, I do, I do uh, either point them to the course or I teach them if it's something very specific that they need help with. I rarely hypnotize people anymore. I used to hypnotize people, but I just found that self-hypnosis, like I said, with your own voice was just more effective and you can control it and you can listen to it like over and over and over again. And the repetition is what's the key. So even if you don't get the script exactly right, if you know what you want to change about yourself specifically, just to be able to put it as a command and just say, I will, I will avoid you know, this, this behavior, or I will get better at this thing, you know, I will improve or whatever. That's, that's sometimes that's all it takes. And just the repetition is the key. Most people won't, they'll do it, but they won't listen to it. (laughs) They won't listen to it every night. They'll say, Oh, I don't need to listen to it tonight. That's their subconscious trying to keep them from changing because it knows it's going to change. So you, if you can force yourself to do it right before you fall asleep or right when you wake up before you have a chance to consciously stop yourself, like my biggest thing is in the morning when I'd wake up, I'd immediately put on my headset and do it before I had a chance to stop myself. That's how I was able to do it. So it's just, it's, I don't think you need my help to do it. You just need to do it at the right time. I think. Does that make sense? Kathy Shelton has her hand raised. Thank you. It's very interesting. Um, can, can laziness or procrastination be affected? <laughs> Meaning like, can you overcome procrastination? Yeah. Oh yeah, Absolutely. Uh, and, and, but, but, it, but I'm going to warn you though, because uh, I have worked with some people on this. Um, so some people actually use procrastination to their advantage. And when you, when they try to like stop procrastination, they find themselves not as a, not as uh, successful as they were when they were procrastinating, believe it or not, because mm. the procrastination would actually be their subconscious way of forcing them to, to wait to the last minute in order to have the pressure that would enable them to go achieve the thing that they needed to achieve, if that makes sense, because they have a little time left and almost like the panic that they're in of pressure was actually helped them to produce the result. So, so um, you have to be a little careful with that one, but, but if, if it's more of like procrastination and and you feel like it's having negative effects on other parts of your life or something, and you're like, I don't care. I want to get rid of it. Then yeah, it would totally, it would totally work. You just, you give yourself the, the commands of what behavior you actually want, which is, uh, you know, like, like if you can identify when you're procrastinating, when would you like to uh, like not procrastinate and give yourself examples in your script. So that way, when you're awake and you encounter it, your subconscious will trigger it and remember the post hypnotic suggestion. And then you'll find yourself taking a different behavior. Thanks for the question. That's great. Pam has her hand raised. Okay. Thank you. It's wonderful to meet you and to hear what you are providing. I think any time that we have something that um, empowers us or enables us to listen to our own voice, it's fantastic. I do have a question. Mm-hmm. Are there situations or are there even people specifically for whom you would not recommend self-hypnosis? Thank you. Well- that's a good, good question. Can I ask why you're asking that? Yeah, because um, I'm asking it for a couple of reasons. One, my own personal experience. And second, if it's for everybody, I'm okay with that. But I just wonder because sometimes I recommend things to people. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure that I'm recommending it to someone um, who could really benefit from it. So it's a question. 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. I appreciate the context. All right, so the um, the the answer to that question would be uh, yes, it is for everyone because we're naturally going into a form of hypnosis all the time anyway. Um, and probably the only time that I would not recommend it, and this is because of the ethics of hypnosis, is uh, if someone. And, and this, I've been trained on this, so I actually have to say this in regard to to the training I've had, which is um, if you're if you have a like mental condition or mental illness, for example, you're being diagnosed with, for example, uh, and you want to try self hypnosis, you uh, you know I have to tell you that you, I'm obligated to tell you, you have to ask your doctor for permission to do that. Because um, medical etymology, usually there's certain diagnoses that require drugs or require certain kind of treatments, and you don't want self-hypnosis potentially to interfere with that because it is very powerful. But if a doctor you're wor- you have is not aware of it, the doctor may, um, you know, may not recommend it at the particular stage that you're at. Maybe you have to go through certain treatments with your medical condition first uh, you know, in order to do it. But as a, as a counterexample, I'll say this. Some doctors will diagnose their patient with like a heart condition. And the heart condition might be caused because they're smoking too much and it's making their heart condition worse. So they might recommend that patient to go to a hypnosis hypnotist or to learn self-hypnosis in order to stop smoking, stop their bad habit because it directly affects their condition and improves their condition as uh, with you know potential heart failure to stop heart failure for, from happening from uh, mm-hmm. their conditioning so so if it's a medical etymology that's involved you probably want to get the actual licensed physician that's treating you or the treating the person to either recommend someone or to say that it's okay before they try it. But if, if it's, if it's like you're trying to improve your golf swing or your pinochle, like you want to get better at playing pinochle with your friends or something. Yeah. You can totally use it for that. <laughs> if that makes sense. Okay. Thanks for the clarification. Thank you. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it. All right, October. Did you have one? I have a fear of, of electricity because I had an illness in high school I'm doing better. I can actually plug in wall plugs without thinking I'm going to have a seizure or something bad will happen to me. But I still cringe at static electricity, number one. And I dream in sound. And if it's because of my musical training, Mm -hmm. if I hear a minor chord, it makes me think of something cool, which I love cool climate. Major chords are warm and diminished chords are scalding or burning. Mm-hmm. And if it's a bad dream, I usually hear the B minor chord in my head. Do you ever use any type of music or sound when you when you hypnotize people? And if so, how? Yeah, I do actually. I actually I'm a musician too, so I actually created uh, my own song uh, that I use a soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And what I do is I actually have, um, it's interesting you say diminished chord like that. So what I've actually done is created a, a progression that actually continually goes downward. It never comes back up again and resolves in a loop. You know, like most songs, you know, like might go, you know, like a da, 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 and it repeats like that. So I have I have one that it takes about seven minutes for it to actually repeat. So it'll go da 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 da, and then and it da 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 da, and it keeps going. It keeps changing chords, like using diminished chords to keep going down progressively to where it simulates in the subconscious mind. You can't attach. You can't. You don't pay attention to it as much, and it kind of simulates musically going down deeper in a trance. Is what I what I kind of figured out. So. 
So I created that for myself and it totally worked. And then I use it on all those. Like I sell some pre-recorded ones I do on my madmind.com, for example, and I use that. And I sell that music too. I have that song by itself to buy huh. just for, for people that want to create their own and use that. Because uh, if you use a song or something you're familiar with, your subconscious and conscious mind have a tendency to want to listen to the song and the words or listen to the beat versus this is meant to kind of zone you out, so to speak, because it keeps, it never resolves. It keeps going downward and downward and downward. So, um, so that's, that's what I, that's my answer to that question. So good question. All right. I think, uh, wow, I can't believe we're right on time. So I want to thank you all. Um, uh, thank you all for your time and for listening. And hopefully this was, this was helpful. And uh, you can always reach me at mavmind.com and also method. M-A-V-M-I-N-D-M-E-T-H-O-D at gmail.com. MavMindMethod at gmail.com is my email. So if you have questions, uh, even after this, let me know. I'm happy to consult with you or talk with you if you're interested. Okay? Thank Thank you you so much. Sorry, Rose. No, you're good. I was just going to say thank you. I was just going to ask for your contact info. So that's perfect. Thank you again. We appreciate you. That was awesome. All right. Thanks, everyone. Y'all have a great rest of your conference. We'll see y'all later. Have a great one.